You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Before we begin this program, I just want to thank our members of Wall Plus. You all make this possible. Thank you so much for being a part of our Patreon, and everybody can go join at wearelibertarians.com slash support. But we want to thank, first and foremost, our $100 a month members. That is John Pusilo, 7th. From the Discord, you can join the Discord at WeAreLibertarians.com. Casey Feldposh, Matthew Durbin, Jeff Bennett, Reinhold, Christy Avery, Jason Doolittle, and Ed Brehob. Thank you all so much for being supporters, and thanks to everyone who subscribes to Wall Plus. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find all of our shows at WeAreLibertarians.com. Like the flagship We Are Libertarians podcast. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, everybody, it's Chris Spangle, and thank you so much for joining me here on We Are Libertarians. You know, it is a very difficult time through this pandemic for so many different reasons. Obviously, there are many hundreds of thousands of people that have passed on from the disease. There are millions of jobs that have been lost, and there is just a lot of economic fallout from this, and... One of the core tenets of libertarianism is that private institutions pick up on caring for those who need to be uh, taken care of in times of, uh, of stress like this. And I host a show in Indianapolis, a radio show on the iHeartRadio stations uh, like Q95 and WNDE in Indianapolis, and it is called Now Hear This, and it's a look at the nonprofits of Indianapolis. And the reason I do the show is that I firmly believe that we have to talk about how we would pick up the slack in the places where the the government is uh, currently caring for people or funding, I should say, really, uh, not caring for people as much. Um, and this show is a, can sometimes be challenging, and you'll hear that in, in the Gleaners uh, episode especially, which is about food security. Um, but as you talk to a lot of these organizations, you really see how much people care for others, what great work nonprofits do. And through the process, I've gotten um, an in-depth look at what is happening on the ground in the middle of this pandemic and economic crisis. And while much of this is uh, somewhat Indianapolis-focused, the vast majority of the content is about the problems that these organizations are solving in the middle of this pandemic so it is relevant to you even though it is an indianapolis radio show there is a podcast of it by the way if you want to catch it it's now hear this with chris spangle look that up uh and i i just wanted you to get a taste of some of the more relevant episodes of that and i hope that you find this interesting it's challenging it can be difficult but it is uh, incredibly important to understand exactly what is happening in the vo most vulnerable in our communities. Um, and as you listen through this, realize this is one city. This is the twelfth largest city uh, in the in America. And you know, there's two to four times the the food need. There is a three hundred percent increase in calls to the suicide hotline. There is, um, you know a 90% increase in women dying in domestic violence incidents, and that's the only way that we know that domestic violence is increasing. There's 
you know, schools shut down, people don't realize schools are the number one way that low-income families access wraparound services or children ask for help in, in violent situations or get food. Uh, and so closing down schools to – let me just be honest with you. Um, I never want to hear a teacher's union talk about the disadvantage, the economic disadvantage, and, 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 and all that ever again because the science around the spread in schools, it's, it's such a minimal amount. You know, de Blasio is even admitting that in New York as they're closing down the school systems. But the teachers' unions, and, and it is a Sophie's choice. They want to protect their teachers, uh, and teachers don't want to be exposed to the virus when you could do online schooling. And I, and I understand that. Um, but there is a real cost to the students, uh, not just emotionally and mentally, but for some of these kids, it's a life-threatening situation that they're not in school. Uh, and every single charity that I have talked to that deals with children, as you'll hear in our Maggie Lewis interview, has transitioned to food service, to, to delivering food, because they're just not able – I mean, some of these families are not able to provide meals for their kids. Um, and so – in a libertarian society, we got to step up. Uh, so this is uh, just a look at what's going on, and it's enlightening. It can be tough, but it is a necessary listen. You know, we can't just turn our eyes to uh, away from the tougher parts in our society because if federal dollars are not flowing to these organizations, we have to be the ones that fund them, and that means you have to care about what's happening. Um, so thank you so much for listening and I appreciate it and, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Welcome to now hear this. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. Now hear this is a conversation with leaders in Indianapolis that are working to improve the lives of Hoosiers. Our goal is to empower you to join in their work and make a difference while informing you about the unseen aspects of life in Indiana. If you miss an episode, you can listen via podcast at now hear this Today, we are speaking to John Elliott, who is the president and CEO of Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana, and their website is gleaners.org. John, thank you so much for joining me, and can you please explain to those who may not have heard of Gleaners, which may be few and far between, what exactly is Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana? We are first and foremost a member of Feeding America, a national network with 21 Indiana counties, including Central east and southeast indiana so when you consider it's indy metro or it's about a third of the population and a third of the food insecure hoosiers but we also actually have three other roles that people may be less familiar with we're a contract reclamation site for surplus food and non-food for kroger stores in indiana and illinois we also have a regional disaster response role for the national network uh, which typically is supporting a, another food bank that uh, is impacted by a hurricane or some such thing. But these days, we're defining disaster differently, I think. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth role, we operate one of six newly created regional produce co-ops that bring in surplus food from farms across the U.S. and Mexico and then redistribute those in mixed loads out to customer food banks in nine states. So we have a growing regional role we're adding dairy and protein to that. So a, a wholesaler to fellow food banks in addition to the retail support of 
of hungry Indiana households. Um, and, and frankly, that mix has, has positioned us pretty well to deal with the pandemic or as well as you can. Uh, we're certainly in a better situation than we would have been without the mixed roles and the access to the perishable food, the healthier food, but also the strategic plan that we put in place in February of last year and the changes that we started making to position ourselves to do three times the distribution volume all of a sudden was very, very helpful when we found ourselves doing two to four times the distribution volume in response to the pandemic. So in an, in an unexpected way, we proved we can do a lot of the goals that were in that strategy to be achieved by the end of fiscal 23. Yes, yeah, so we talked to uh, several food banks, uh, not food banks, but uh, you know, smaller distribution points who who get food from you or from others who do something similar. But I don't know that a lot of listeners fully understand how the food bank system or or covering food insecurity necessarily works. They may have some experience at maybe their church where. You know, there will be a line of cars who are, who are picking up the food. They may see that on the news. But can you explain how the food uh, gets to that point where a volunteer is handing it to somebody in their car? Where does the food come from? What is this? What is gleaners in that in that chain? And how does all of that work? It is a very complex and some, including myself, would say overly complex model. Uh, but you can, you can bring a little clarity to that if you think about the role definition and if you think about the type of food and the, the, uh, how the distribution takes place. So first of all, a food bank, think of as a wholesale distribution center for the most part. So we are sitting in a large warehouse for a reason because distribution is the core of a lot that we do. But then you have local neighborhood food pantries which you should think of as your neighborhood retail store where the clients or customers come in and are served the food in normal times or not pandemic times. But there are other ways that people need access to food. There are places where there are no food pantries. So gleaners and others will set up a mobile pantry, predetermined, pre-schedule with local partners and, and set up in a parking lot and distribute food that way. And a surprising amount and variety of food through mobile pantries. We're doing a lot of those in Marion County these days. There also are pantries that we've deliberately set up in schools, so school-based pantries, and they have a little bit of variation from the, the brick-and-mortar traditional pantry in your neighborhood church or, or community center. The fourth channel pre-pandemic was back sacks of food that are packed with shelf-stable food kids can feed themselves with and no prep required to feed them over the weekend. The school-based pantries and the back sack channels stopped when schools closed. So we lost two of four distribution channels right away. More telling is the role of government feeding programs, all four of which are run through the U.S. Department of Agriculture budget. So all the school feeding programs, those uh, pre-pandemic, because all data is somewhat suspect these days, but pre-pandemic, about 19% of all meals to the hungry in Indiana or school feeding programs. Mm. 10% was the entire nonprofit sector combined. So schools were double what we did and they stopped. That's why there was such a spike in need the day those doors closed. Uh, the oh, other so, three programs so are So let, let, let me pause there. So that 
that that particular distribution point closes, and so that every food pantry we've talked to said that their need basically doubled overnight. Is that a matter of people shifting to those other distribution channels, ex- extended need? Um, that's an interesting point that I hadn't heard anywhere else. So, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. When the stool, when the schools stopped serving the kids breakfast and lunch or out-of-school time activities that come with food, those meals had to be replaced by whatever adult is supervising those kids. I mean, maybe grandma or great-grandma, too. Um, and so the family had to replace those meals. That was the first wave, and a very dramatic, visible increase in the first and second weeks of the pandemic, we saw that impact. The second large wave or increase in the food lines was when employers started sending employees home or closing, and there were either eliminate there was either elimination of household income or a significant reduction in household income and their ability to buy food. So waves one and two, and we had held pretty steady at about double the normal number of clients across this state and in the cleaner service area all the way through um, the end of July. But then in August, we started seeing an increase in numbers again. Hmm. So that plateau came up as there was uncertainty about schools reopening or not, people who hung on, you know, people were losing household resources and needed help. If they'd been under reduced household income for several months, you could tell when people were starting to run out of any savings or other options they had. Or maybe the unemployment. The $600 supplemental, we believe that had some temporary effect in keeping people out of the food lines. But then as that, as that changed, that is part, but not all of the reason we're seeing more people join the food lines again. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It's all, it's all very complex. And, and I apologize for stopping there. You were, you were talking about other distribution channels and I want to make sure we get the full picture because I think, you know, people get their news off of social media, which is all bias driven. And when you when you talk to an organization like yours that's really on the ground through many of these situations, as we've got two crises that we're facing as as a, a city, a state, a country, a world, really, um, you you really start to see the impact, the need that is out there. Um, give us an idea of. Just some of the, some of the things that you've seen, other than just the increased need, and and some of the stories that gleaners hears from f- some of their food pantries. Well, see, first of all, let me really quickly tell you the other three programs. Yes, because, please. So SNAP, which was previously known as Food Stamps, is about two thirds of the meals for the hungry in this state. It's a huge factor, and something that the charitable sector could never hope to replace. So what happens in Washington with SNAP funding is critical to success or failure of the system. Can, can you explain like why private – can you explain why – can you explain that statement? Why would private charity not be able to make that up? Because even at the capacity that Gleaners was operating at before the pandemic, we were providing 10% of the meals in our service area. And SNAP was providing 67%. Right. And and so those benefits, people take that benefit, that basically money directly to the to the grocery stores, to the retailers. Right. Okay. 
but we could not we could not grow to eight times our our volume. Mm. It's it's been amazingly stressful for the system and the people involved to maintain double. Right. Eight times is not conceivable. But in addition, you have the WIC program, which is a more targeted program and not as large as SNAP, but still contributes. And the school program we talked about. And then there's another program called TFAP, or the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which is when USDA buys in bulk. And then the Feeding America Food Bank Network is the distribution arm. So they distribute, they allocate to us, and that food goes out into our channel. So it's a, it's typically less than 10% of the food we distribute, but still a critical 10% because the USDA and the Indian State Department of Health, that's the local administrator, really focuses on a healthy, nutritious mix. Mm. So it's positive to hunger and it's positive to health. And so TFAP is the fourth. You combine all of those, that's 83% of the meals for the food insecure. And we couldn't aspire to, to, to replace those. Um, you ask about things that are changed or different as well. The entire workforce model has changed. Pre-pandemic, over 20,000 volunteers a year came to Gleaners to do 40% of our work. When the medical safety requirements uh, required us to no longer have volunteers come into our facility, we lost 40% of the work capacity, but we needed double the work done. Mm. In addition, for some, you know, again, pandemic results, less than 100% of our employees could continue to work in the building. So we've been up less than 100% staffing, lost volunteers, did 40% of the work, doubled the work, and every single task and role got more complex. So how do you get all that done? <laughs> yeah, how do you get all that done? Well, we literally called out the guard. Uh, the governor um, and uh, support from the governor's task force and frankly disproportionate help and advocacy from family and social services administration, Dr. Sullivan and Rachel Lane really advocated for us. And the national guard is at the 20 largest hunger relief organizations in the state and has been for months now. Uh, we're beginning to taper that and we'll wind down by the end of September but they have been the difference between reducing our food distribution and doubling it. Hmm. So critical role that the guard, the national guard has played. And that's frankly, what's true for gleaners in that sense is even more true for some of the smaller food banks that are more dependent on volunteer uh, workforce. One thing we also did um, thanks to greater than usual donations from, from donors, is to um, hire some of the temporary workers who were at hospitality locations in downtown Indy and lost their paychecks um, because of the pandemic and brought them onto the Gleaners payroll. Hmm. And so it's been roughly 45 temporary workers since March who have been here at Gleaners working and getting work done that volunteers would have done previously. And to some extent, some of the doubled, the doubled workload as well. And it's been a great fit because some of them might have ended up on the food lines themselves, but instead they still have a paycheck. Yeah. As a house. 
and they have taken advantage of our offer to take home some of the family meal boxes that we've been distributing for their own families as well, if they have if they have a need. So, and you couldn't find a more compassionate group that can relate to the families that they are packing the food boxes for. So it's been a great fit. Uh, reliable staffing is the firm and, and very appropriately named firm. And um, we, we also couldn't have done it without them. We are talking to John Elliott, who is the president and CEO of Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana. Gleaners.org is their website. My name is Chris Spangle, and you are listening to Now Hear This on all iHeart stations in Indianapolis and on podcast at nowhearthisindy.com. Um, you, you mentioned uh, previously the the workers that are from maybe the restaurant industry, and they can relate really well to those who are getting the, the food boxes how important is that relationship, that touch point um, in this process? And what does distribution look like for for both ends, for gleaners overall, you know, in general? I'm sure it's different there. You know, I go to a church on the south side that has car lines, but, you know, they used to be able to go in and shop and now it's it's just completely different. I mean, have you been able to find your groove in terms of distribution and and also what's the relationship between your gleaners employees and the people that they're serving? Well, phenomenal relationship between clients and the gleaner staff, but we also rely on uh, pre-pandemic 600, more than 600 now local partner organizations who also interact with those clients. So we get more interaction opportunity through, the mobile pantries, um, and we rely on the local agencies to have the interaction. But when I said earlier, everything has changed in terms of process. The back sacks stopped, the school pantries stopped, the brick and mortar pantries had to switch to, to drive through, as has our own on-site pantry, which has been seeing between four and five times the pre-pandemic volume over the last several months. So disproportionate increase in our on-site food pantry activity. Pre-packed boxes, which unfortunately has taken away the option of clients to walk in and choose what they want within what's available, and we hope to get back to that as soon as we can do so safely. The, the other thing is we had to design two entirely new programs quickly and flexibly. Um, we built a home delivery model with help from Carano and Genesis, two corporate partners, who literally in less than 48 hours designed a call-in, text-in um, system for someone who was homebound, whether it's because of the virus or otherwise, they cannot get to the food options. They can have a family meal box delivered. And then Indy Hunger Network staff became the call center for us. And we pretty quickly ramped up to about 1,000 um, or so of those um, each week. And it's, it's increased some as well. And they're meant to be one-on-one deliveries to those who fit the criteria and and can't access it. We also quickly realized some of them, for medical or other reasons, couldn't prepare their own meals. Mm. So we brought in Second Helpings as an additional partner for prepared meals, if that's what they need as well. So, And we'll continue to refine that. That's also a program that we've decided we will continue to do after the pandemic subsides. 
we've seen value in that, and we even see some value to evolve that to more of a, to part of not the entire, but part of a food desert solution, mm. more than a household at a time. So a lot of discussion going on with our partners, uh, but amazing to me that our operations team and Carano and Genesis um, could build that in less than 48 hours to have food delivered. The other key player, uh, because we are not in that single household home delivery business as leaners, uh, Tom Hanley and his team at 913 Sports, when the schools closed, lost access for their programs, their youth programs, and offered their help. Um, I, I hope uh, Tom doesn't regret that we said, absolutely, here's what you can do. And, and they, without hesitation, became the delivery arm. They don't. We interviewed him recently, and and oh. he, yeah, he is he is loving the opportunity. So allow me to share that with you. Yeah, he came on and talked about their switch, and um, and we've all switched to entirely new things uh, in that case, but also modified activity. The other thing is we because our preference has been and still is that clients have the dignity and opportunity of choosing what they want or yeah. what they don't want. You know, and they can have more of a retail shopping experience and be treated with courtesy like a customer. And we'll get back to that. But in the meantime, we needed a new way to do it through mobile distribution with social distancing and no contact and so on. And so we went to pre-packed boxes and um, load those into car trunks and a roll through. And we got pretty efficient. We've done some mega mobiles at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and State Fairgrounds, but even some like the John Marshall uh, High School location every Saturday, um, you know, on a weekly basis, we've grown to 1,800 or more households per Saturday just at that one location. And, of course, we've got activity going on across 21 counties, not just at John Marshall. So the volume of need is disproportionate in some neighborhoods. And that family meal box didn't happen at a peak. We were doing 30,000 a week mm. from zero. Wow. <laughs> we ramped up past 10,000 in the first week. And if you convert that, so that is uh, running about, they've been running between 15 and 21 and a half dollars per box. None of it budgeted. Home delivery program was not in the budget. It didn't exist as a program. So uh, we've gotten surprisingly comfortable with doing things that didn't exist before with funding that didn't exist before either. Yeah, that's amazing. The the uh, And all of the stories that I started doing this program about a month or two before COVID hit and talking to about six charities or nonprofit organizations a week. And what I've found is just the amazing adapt adaptability of, of people, you know, like you said, 913 sports or your organization and, uh, or the red cross, everybody seems to be uh, taking on the challenge well and, and shifting funding. And, and it, you know, it is um, really, really impacting people as, as you can hear. So, let's talk about how I, I, oh i'm curious about what is what comes in the boxes what kind of food do people get so they have varied over time but it's um it's tended to be a mix of perishable and non-perishable or it may literally be a box that's shelf stable and a box that's perishable but the perishable side's uh heavy on produce but uh we've had some great boxes of protein um gallons of milk in the mix 
um, some good quality shelf stable. It, it really has varied. And the federal coronavirus food assistance program brought some additional pre-boxed food into the system. And there are some local vendors like McFarling Foods who won federal USDA contracts to be part of that as well. So it's nice to see them and Prairie Farms Dairy and some others benefit from those federal contracts to feed the hungry. Uh, your comment about other organizations, though, re- reminded me of something I would share if you don't mind. Please. Because I hear different stories from other states, from my counterparts. There's something uniquely Hoosier about the way we roll up our sleeves and everybody comes together and we collaborate in an unselfish way and in a, a client or neighbor in need focused solution. So in ways that you might think some charities in a similar area or there might be a little bit of competition for donor funds or for, you know, notoriety, whatever it might be, there's none of that. We have come together in such a helpful way. And for those of us who are leaders of organizations or have staffs that know each other, that's been an emotional help too. This is exhausting work mentally and physically, and to know that your fellow nonprofit leader or your fellow operations manager at another charity has your back. And the way we've come together, I mean, Gleaners has become a food purchasing arm for dozens of organizations, not just us. And we're helping out. You know, John Whitaker at Midwest Food Bank helped find an offsite location that several charities shared. Uh, it's there's a lot that's going on and in an interesting way you're seeing leadership from the donor sector do that and you're seeing that that collaboration on the uh, state and local agency level too that the funding consortium led by united way but it includes nina mason polyam and lily endowment and and a list of others that pooled their resources and really they've They've asked us the right questions. They've gone about it the right way. They've really made sure those resources were deployed in the most effective way they could. And they did it as a team. Yeah, and, we and teams have talked. Yeah, we talked in uh, the Arts Council interview about the Lilly Endowment and its importance. But there's something special about Indianapolis where the political class, the nonprofit class, the education class, the people who are engaged in all these major sectors of Indianapolis and Indiana seem to put the good of a person who's in a food line above party politics or their own personal politics or ambition. And there's something different about this state that, that I've found as I've done these interviews or worked on other projects um, where that that's it's truly a credit to the city. And I think Lilly Endowment probably pays – plays a big role in that, you know, in, in being so influential in so many different areas and, and just setting the tone of leadership. So, you know, I think it's an important thing to highlight for Hoosiers to really understand about their city that this it's different here <laughs> than it is in some other places. It's not just the resources they disproportionately bring to bear. They set an expectation of teamwork and collaboration and partnership um, which is in the best interests of the clients being served. So it's that tone and expectation they set that is just as impactful as the dollars. But it's not limited to foundations. Um, just as one example, among those family meal boxes that I talked about that was 30000 at its peak, for a while, 
a third of those were going to IPS households. Mm. And we built a unique model. Scott Martin, who oversees administration for IPS and is a cleaners board member, key player. We worked with the food services team and the transportation team. We matched them up with gleaners programs and operations staff. They got their maps out. They got they sat down. They designed 25 custom routes where gleaners found the food, found the money to pay for the food, and National Guard troops loaded the buses in our building. IPS buses left here, and they ran routes twice a week and gave IPS families who were on the free and reduced lunch program a box of food to feed that family for a week. And we repeated that process week after week, a program that did not exist, but we had to pay for it. So Jeff Simmons, CEO of Alanco, reached out to us and wanted to help. And we have a Gleaners board member there on his direct reports team who was also sort of an intermediary. Um, so Jeff and Dave Urbanic, he just started calling his fellow CEOs and said, join us, which is more credible, right? They put up $400,000 of Alanco money, the first check issued by the new Alanco Foundation. And Jeff put his personal clout on the line and called those CEOs and didn't take no for answer. <laughs> and he raised a million and a half dollars to feed those IPS families for two months. We have heard his name more than once on the program as well. Uh, Jeff Simmons and Alonco. Um, so great to highlight them. Um, and I can name 10 companies, similar thing. The point I was trying to make is yeah. it's not just the charitable foundations like Lilly Endowment. No. And each one contributes in a somewhat unique way and it's up to us as the social service or charity organizations to define that need in a way that we can match that we can come together um, but i think we're not the only city that has generous corporate players but i still think there's a unique way that it's done um, here in indiana uh, let me ask you about your fundraising event. It's a program on September 10th, and it is the 40th anniversary celebration of Gleaners on Wish TV. What will be going on? Tell us a little bit about it. So in 30 minutes of airtime, so I have a newfound um, appreciation for the editing and production crews at TV stations <laughs> because uh, we are going to recap the highlights of 40 years of history for Gleaners. Uh, we're going to touch a bit on the pandemic's impact today in current times and preview a bit how our pretty ambitious strategic plan will take us to 2023 and beyond. And we're having a little fun. My two predecessors, um, Pam Altmeyer and Cindy Hubert, and I had a great time just chatting while the cameras rolled and uh, our friends at CVR had to had to sort of edit that down into a <laughs> defined space, sort of relating to your problem now with me on the radio, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> but we've woven in some firsthand stories from employees, from food insecure neighbors that we have fed. There's a good mix of, of um, storytelling and updates and, and predictions for the future. So, if, if you want in 30 minutes to sit in the comfort of your home and turn on your television and, and hear 40 years of history and an optimistic and encouraging pivot to the future, I recommend that program. Uh, will it be available digitally? Like if people miss it, can they watch it on your YouTube channel or will it be uh, just September 10th only on Wish TV? So it will be live streamed on Wish TV. 
uh, on the web. So if you don't get the you know on-air broadcast of Wish, you can get it through their website. Um, Gleaners will be doing some broadcasting in whole and in part. Um, maybe some excerpts, you know, like we've talked about pulling out a great client story and sharing that just standalone through YouTube and our website and other means. So it will at least be in portions after the fact, and then a link uh, shared as soon as we can. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking to John Elliott, president and CEO of Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana. His Their website, excuse me, is gleaners.org. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the opportunity, and I love what you're doing with this series of nonprofit stories. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to my guest today. She is an an eminent citizen, one of the most accomplished people in the city uh, that is a, a great leader in our in our city. Uh, her name is Maggie Lewis. She's the CEO and executive director of Boys and Girls Clubs of Indianapolis. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And thank you for that warm welcome. No, absolutely. I've, I've followed your career for a long time and uh, you do so many great things for the city of Indianapolis. And we are so happy to have you here on Now Hear This. Uh, we're here today to talk about the Boys and Girls Clubs of Indianapolis and uh you know, start. Let's start with what. What is that? We see the signs around. You may have heard of the organization, but what do you do exactly? Yeah. So, Boys and Girls Clubs of Indianapolis. One, we have been around for over 125 years in our great city of Indianapolis. Our mission is simple: to to serve the kids that need us most. We will do whatever it takes to ensure that our kids are successful, productive citizens in our community. And so, that support and what that looks like varies but again at the end of the day we want to serve the kids in our city that needs us most how did the organization get started so like a lot of great organizations it actually started by some amazing women who saw a need um, to serve kids in our community wanted to ensure that they had the tools that they need to be successful that they had a place where they can go and be safe a place where they can go and receive that mentorship that support that they need it. And not because the, the family wasn't intact, but we find that in a lot of different communities, parents and caregivers are busy taking care of the bills, going to work, going to better themselves so they can um, be a better provider. And so our kids are often left at home by themselves to, to fend for themselves. And so the Boys and Girls Clubs comes in and provide that after school care for the kids in our communities. So what does that look like for your typical member that comes into one of your programs? Tell us about some of the programs that uh, you run. So again, we are after school provider. Um, So after school kids are dropped off at the Boys and Girls Clubs. Um, We have 12 locations throughout our great city. Um, We provide meals. And so oftentimes we know that our kids are faced with a lot of different challenges. We want to offer these programs, but first we want to make sure their basic needs are met. And so we provide meals to our kids um, when they come um, into our space. We provide academic um, programming. So we want to make sure that our kids are getting help with their homework, that they're getting the tutoring that they need, again, to be um, successful in school. So lots of programming around academics. Also, healthy lifestyles. We want to make sure that our kiddos are healthy and we want to make sure they're making healthy choices with their foods. Um, We want to ensure that they're being physically active. Oftentimes kids like to play video games and I'm not knocking video games, but 
when I grew up, we were out running around playing tag and, and, and playing kickball and what have you. So we want to make sure that our kids are, are healthy and physically active. And so those are the types of programs that happen in our space. We also offer um, arts programming. We do um, programming around um, food, um, you name it. Again, we try to provide a lot of different programs for our kids to keep their attention because we recognize there are a lot of different things competing for our kids' um, attention. And so we wanna, again, provide that safe space and give them activities that keep them busy and active and, and, and off of the streets. So do, do uh, your members show up to a physical location? Are you in schools? Where do these activities take place? So we have five standalone clubs that we like to call, but then also we have seven school sites where we have great partnerships with Warren Schools, IPS, and a charter school here in our community. So um, it, for the school sites, it's really easy. With the, when that school bell rings, they just come on over to a space where our team is there welcoming them and, and, and keeping them busy. But then we do have those five standalone sites in neighborhoods that we believe that truly needs us. Um, and so they're dropped off at, at the sites. We have one site specifically at 38th and Post Road. It's our newest site. And we believe that community need, needed a boys and girls club. And so we're there to be a, a great community partner, but then also located at a space where a place where kids can get to us from the apartments over in that area specifically. We are talking to Maggie Lewis, who is the CEO and executive director of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Indianapolis. And their website is bgcindy.org. You can follow them on Twitter at bgcindy. What does, who is the typical member of one of your clubs? Yeah, so when we say the kids that need us as most, it's um, young people anywhere from the age of five to 18. Um, Again, parents are often working, going to school, need that extra support for the family. So we become that safe place for families to, for mom and dad to go off to work, to go to school and do what they need to do. Um, And again, five to 18 years of age are the kids that we serve. We here recently created a program for what we call opportunity youth from ages 16 to 24. Um, Somewhere along the path, they've gone the wrong direction. They feel like they've gotten off the beaten path. And so we have the pivot program, again, 16 to 24 years of age for kids who maybe dropped out of school, gotten in trouble with the law, and just need some help rethinking what life could be. Um, So we are also serving that age group as well, which is a little bit different than what we've done in the past. But again, we felt like there was a need in the community and Boys and Girls Clubs, along with the city of Indianapolis, employee Andy Cafe, came together to create this opportunity for these youth specifically. Can you give us some specific examples of, you know, with, uh, you know, respecting privacy, but give us some reasons for why that particular program was necessary. What, what are you seeing out there in your work that, our listeners ought to understand about the need for that program. So when we talk about opportune youth, we're talking about, again, kiddos who may have dropped out of school for whatever reason, who have found that they needed to help support their family members, um, have gotten in trouble with the law. We know that African-American males in our community specifically have dropped out of school at a higher rate, have have to deal with um, unemployment at a higher rate, and so, again, with that type of information in our community, we felt like we needed to come together and create some support and programming around to help them rethink what success looks like and what life 
could be. Again, when kids drop out of school and find themselves caught up with the law or getting in trouble, like there's got to be someone to come alongside them and help them rethink what life could be. Do you have some examples that of folks that have come out of the Boys and Girls Club and, and some of these programs, be it that specific one or um, others, that that highlights your work, the importance of your work that really helped set someone up for success? Again, no fault of their parents' um, own, right? Parents have to do what they need to do to take care of their families. We often have um, young people who just don't have that mentorship. I can think of one lady, one young lady right now, dad was out work doing what he needs to do. Um, she was at home oftentimes by herself, joined the Boys, Boys and Girls Club at a young age and stayed with us through um, high school. Got to the point where she's like, I wanna go to high school, but I know that I can't afford it. My father can't um, help financially. And so the Boys and Girls Club, because we have scholarship money and because she's been a member for such a long time, we were able to help this young lady um, go to college. And so she's at school, she's thriving. And because of that mentorship and that support, we were able to step in and help her family get this young lady through school and off to college. And we're very proud of that. And there, again, when I, I, I chuckle, my team chuckle when I say we do whatever it takes to ensure that a child is successful and, and are able to identify what success looks like. That's what I mean. Like we will stand with a child and that family through as long as we can. And then again, when they turn 18 and they're figuring out what's next, we're going to be right there with them to give them the support and the tools that they need to be successful. Well, that is great. So if, if someone out there is listening to this and wants to involve their child in your program, how does one go about that? So you can give us a call at 317-920-4700. Again, 317-920-4700. Um, you can also email us or no, I'll, I'll say check out our website is probably the easiest www.bgcindy.org. Um, again, we're easy to easy to find. Look us up. And again, we we offer a program at such a low rate. So for the school year is twenty five dollars. But if a family says we can't afford that twenty five dollars, we will waive that twenty five dollars. We just want to be a support to this community and to our kids. Now more than ever, we feel like our children um, need us. So <laughs> I started this program a month before the coronavirus pandemic hit, and that has taken up the, the majority of the discussion, just seeing how our community has responded to the pandemic. And I have seen some amazing things come out of these conversations and, and the uh, the social entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak. How have you adapted to the pandemic? How has that changed your organization? What are you doing differently? Yeah. So when the pandemic first hit, like a lot of um, not-for-profits, we had to shift how we were offering services to um, our members. And so we started providing um, virtual programming to our kids. And so we use the Zoom platform to, to meet with our kids, to check in with our kids, to help with that e-learning. Um, but one thing that happened, what we noticed immediately, our kids would sign up, but they didn't have the tools that they needed to participate in. For example, we, we would have them sign up to do an arts program. And then we realized, wait a minute, 
they don't have the paper or the or the the scissors or the or the pace. And so we had to quickly go get some donations and get some support and then drop off materials to our kids on their doorsteps to ensure that they're able to participate and get the best out of the program that's being offered. We also realized like, hey, they were jumping on Zoom and then they were talking about being hungry. So with a lot of support of the community, we started dropping off food boxes at our members' homes. Again, doing whatever we needed to do to ensure that our kids and our families knew that they were not alone. And, you know, we often talk about um, a lot of things have been canceled in 2020, right? But we believe at Boys and Girls Couples of Indianapolis that hope is not canceled. So anything that we can do to inspire and 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 to talk about hope and and again inspire our families, that's what we're, we want to do because we do not believe hope is canceled. That's one thing that we really believe um, through and through. Sounds great, just to have that lifeline, somebody checking in and and just uh, making sure folks are okay. Absolutely. And we as adults need that, right? We, yeah. we need to know that there's somebody willing to stand beside us or come alongside us and just hold our hands and help us through this. And so that's what we do at Boys and Girls Club. That's why mentorship is so important in our community. Um, kids need to know that there's a, an adult that loves and cares about them. So obviously everybody's shifting to fundraising events. Those are incredibly important for any nonprofit. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the Virtual Youth of the Year Blue Door Gala. So now more than ever, we believe it's important that we celebrate our youth. I just talked about hope being canceled and a lot of things being canceled in 2020. But again, we believe hope is not canceled and we need to celebrate our kids, our babies now more than ever. So every year we select a youth of the year. It's our opportunity to bring all of our kids together and celebrate the good things that they're doing in, in, in life, right? Oftentimes we hear about the bad things kids are doing, but this is our opportunity to celebrate them, um, whether they're doing great in sports, whether they're doing well in academics. We just want to stop and pause and celebrate our kids. And so on November the 11th, we're going to announce our youth of the year. Again, it is a fundraiser. Um, and like many not-for-profits, fundraising has gotten challenging. Um, and so the feel of our gala, will it, it, it will feel different. However, the purpose is still the same. We want to celebrate our kids and thank them for all the great things that they they do too in our, in our community. So that event is going to take place virtually November the 11th from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., all the information, again, is on um, our website, and you can sign on to this um, event. Um, it is free, but we are asking for a donation of, a, of $150. But again, if that is too steep for you, we're asking for a donation. Again, again any amount that you can um, give would be greatly appreciated. Final question to Maggie Lewis, who is the CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Indianapolis. What is the one thing you see every day in your work that you wish everybody understood? That our kids are amazing. They are amazing. Again, oftentimes we focus on the bad things that kids are doing, but we have great young people in our community and we do need to celebrate them. It's often, often like with everything that's going on in the world from the pandemic, the politics, all that negative stuff. We have some amazing kids that deserve our attention. And I promise you, 
they make everything feel so much better and put things into perspective like no one else. Maggie Lewis, CEO and Executive Director of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Indianapolis. Their website is bgcindy.org. Be sure to check them out. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. We are focusing a lot on this show about the pandemic. This episode is no different. We are revisiting um, with our friends at Fairbanks and uh, talking about addiction today. We had our, our good friend Eric Tatarud on early in the pandemic, right as things were starting to transition. And today we have the pleasure of talking to Teresa Anderson, who is the interim CEO and the chief nursing officer at Fairbanks. And thank you for joining us, Teresa, but also for those who didn't catch that initial episode, what is Fairbanks and what do you do? Fairbanks is a hospital here in Indianapolis and our sole focus is on the disease of addiction and recovery. Uh, Fairbanks has been around for 75 years, so this is not new to us. Um, And with the COVID epidemic and things that have gone on right now, it's just made this situation actually worse for people, unfortunately. What is the magnitude and, and what are you seeing as you're out there talking to people? Because when we talked to Eric, it was very early on. You'd switch to online, but it was too early to kind of tell the scope and impact of the pandemic on those struggling with addiction. What have the last few months been like? The last few months have actually been very challenging, not only for us internally and in managing and helping people, but also just the public. And by saying that, what I mean is that the disease of addiction is basically um, even more challenged by the isolation that happens with patients. So um, one of the key points that I wanted to make was from the IU Grand Challenge, and this is just some details around that. Um, But quoting them, it says, those of us who work in the field of substance use disorders became concerned for those in recovery as that pandemic spread. Social distancing was put into place. Social connection and support is key to that recovery process. And without, with that, without them, relapse is more likely. When people with opioid use disorder relapse, there's more than a loss of sobriety. Sometimes there's a loss of life, and how tragic is that? 78% of the people interviewed for the IU Grand Challenge report higher levels of stress before the pandemic, mm. primarily due to job or family responsibilities, job losses, reductions, And those changes in routine, coupled with that unstructured free time because they can't get the recovery support that they need, make that recovery much more difficult. And that stress contributes to that loneliness, frustration, and hopelessness. So, you know, that is very sad and unfortunate what's going on. Uh, And because of that pandemic, we have limited spaces, not only internally in our inpatient setting, but also in our outpatient settings, in our group rooms. So trying to serve the most people with limited space um, has presented a lot of challenges and unfortunately has um, restricted what we can do at this point in time. But we're hoping with the changes and things that are going on right now, um, opening up some of those services, being careful with that, we can serve more people. So how many people do you typically serve? I mean, and and how much more do you have to go? I mean, I'm I'm sure there's an infinite amount of need that you could you could pr- progress, you know, I don't, you don't want to put a cap on it, but um give us an idea of the facts and figures of Fairbanks. Well, going back, like I said, Fairbanks has been here for 75 years. We were the first alcohol treatment center here in the state of Indiana, uh known as the home for alcoholic men. 
then we also had the first unit in Indiana solely dedicated for treatment of women. In 1982, we started treating adolescents. You know, this is a disease of kids, you know, adult addiction is out there in those teenagers too. We, well, we hear that in the news all the time. It's very, very sad. Um, last year, we joined with the Community Health Network. So we're part of that Community Health Network and we're very proud to be affiliated with them. But last year, Fairbanks reached more than 18,000 individuals through treatment, education, and outreach. So, and by doing so, it was one and a half million dollars uh, of patient assistance. Mm. That's incredible. Um, but there's always more need out there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned that 78% said that they're struggling. And obviously, I, I mean, I think, I think almost everybody is dealing with, uh, you know, some level of struggle through 2020 for various reasons. Um, but why are people who struggle with addictions of various types more susceptible in this environment? Primarily relates to that social isolation. We have recovery groups that meet here and, and all over the state. Um, but that support from one another is essential in that ongoing um, recovery process. And by limiting those or now not having those available to them, they are isolated. They have free time. They struggle. They've got concerns with employment or their family. Um, that exacerbates that feeling of cravings to want to relapse. So that's the, the cycle that these people are in right now. And it's very unfortunate because some of the questions we keep getting asked are, when can we reopen these again? Mm. And the fact is, we just have to be careful at this point. So, you know, meetings, friends who, that I've had that have struggled with maybe alcohol addiction or other substance abuse issues, going to a meeting is critical. And <laughs> so in the era of a pandemic, how have you transitioned from those in-person meetings? What are you doing? Are you able to do any in-person meetings or is it all online at this point? For our outpatients, we can do telemetry or te telehealth visits. We can do um, um, kind of an IOP, a blended, a virtual kind of uh, support with that. Obviously, we have our inpatient and our outpatient. So we are opening those back up, and we're always looking for different kind of ways to do that. Um, but much more growth in that virtual and online. Talking to Teresa Anderson, who is the interim CEO and chief nursing officer of Fairbanks. Uh, their website is fairbankscd.org. And, uh, you know, if there's somebody listening right now, let, let's start with the individual and then start about, and I'll ask about the family and friends, but let's say somebody out there is listening and they're, they think they have a problem and they don't know where to start. And that's usually the hardest part, like 50% of it is just getting moving in terms of recovery. What would you say to that person? Where do they, where do they begin? How do they get help? What are some resources that you'd recommend? Well, they can always go to our webpage, and that is uh, our Fairbanks website is Fairbanks, F-A-I-R-B-A-N-K-S-C-D.org. So one can reach out there. Um, they can call. There's a number on there. They can call our access center and reach out to make an appointment. But one of the things that we wanted to say, too, was, you know, getting here and making that appointment is just the first piece of that. Um, and again, coming here. You know, you've reached out, you have a problem, your family wants to help you, you know, there's a stigma associated with substance use disorder. We do not want financial considerations to be a barrier towards treatment. It's hard enough reaching out and making that appointment and being here, but then to find out 
but you don't have the resources can be devastating. So we want to be able to help them. What if you're a family member and you see somebody in your house or in your immediate circle of friends and family that's struggling and they maybe are resistant to having that conversation? What are, what are some tips that you might share with them on how to intervene? I would say talk to them. You know, really, I'm concerned about you. I want you to be well. You know, sometimes it is just walking with them, making that appointment, coming with them, being that support person for them. That is huge. Um, to know that they're not in this alone, that there's people out there that care about them. And are there any, you know, books or, or resources on your website that maybe would be a good guide for those people? Oh, yes. There's all sorts of resources. There's brochures out there. It links them to different kinds of treatment. It tells about all of our different services on at Fairbanks, whether that be inpatient, outpatient, the lodges. We have supported living programs. So there's quite a few different options out there. And it really depends on that person's um, disease and what that disease really links to the appropriate level of care. Um, and our trained counselors um, are very much in tune with what that looks like for that individual. So once they can get that assessment done, they can link them to the appropriate service. Are, are there any, you know, any services out there like an intervention service that you work with? Yes, we do some crisis intervention. So there's an ability to call and get help that way as well. Excellent. So you, you mentioned funding for individuals. How, how do you fund Fairbanks and what can people do to help Fairbanks grow their capacity in this time of need? Yes, obviously we will do an insurance assessment with those individuals, but if they cannot um, afford treatment, um, then we will look to provide and be able to link with them to be, get that service um, but one of the main events that we do have is our Circle of Hope, and that event is typically held in April of every year. It is our major fundraising event. It helps um, fund our patient assistance. We have monies available, again, to help provide treatment for patients, and we wouldn't be able to do that. That event was had to be, I'll say, postponed or canceled. That has now turned into our virtual day of giving. That day of giving is October 8th. And we are hoping that we can reach out to individuals to make at least a $75 contribution to our patient assistance fund uh, on that day. Our then uh, new Circle of Hope will be in 2021, uh, barring kind of more issues with our pandemic situation, but it is scheduled for April of 2021. Um, but this is, again, our 75th anniversary. We're encouraging those individuals to donate that $75. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts have offered a generous match of $50,000 to those donations, so we're very excited about that. All right. Well, and you can find more information, I assume, at FairbanksCD.org? Slash Day of Giving or on the Facebook page at FairbanksCD for more information. Perfect. So let me ask you this. What is the one thing that you see every day? that you wish people understood about your work, that you just, you know, when it comes to addiction, what is the thing that people who have no experience with it ought to understand? That addiction and the disease of addiction is out there and it affects everyone. I think we all have a personal story through our family, through our friends that reach out there, that this is everywhere. Uh, and it can happen at any point in time. So um, it's out there. Let's see how we can help these individuals. So many have gone through treatment and been you know, just rescued uh, at that point. Um, I've heard our medical director say, I don't care if they come back 30 times, as long as it hits them that 30th time and they finally get it. Um, that's what we're here for. It's, it's a chronic disease. 
not a personal failure. So that stigma helps and makes people prevent from getting treatment. And that's what we're worried about. So we want them to know we're here. We're not here to judge them. We're here to help them. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much for joining me uh, again, FairbanksCD.org. Thank you, Teresa Anderson, for joining me. Thank you so much. Today we are talking to David Seiler, who is the president of Families First and has been so since January 2016. And uh, the cool fact about this organization is that they are the oldest nonprofit human services organization in the city, in central Indiana, actually. And so, David, first, thank you for joining us. And what what does Families First do and and why? Tell us when you were founded. Give us a little history of the organization. Yeah, Chris, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you're right. In fact, we are the oldest of our kind in the state of Indiana, founded in 1835. Wow. Just to give some of your listeners perspective, um, that's about the time that Connor Prairie takes place in. So if you've ever been there, you kind of know what life was like then. It was uh, very different than the life we know now, for sure. Of course, people were kind of almost a little more uh, less mobile like we are now too. It wasn't quarantine exactly, but it was founded in 1835. So we've been around for over 180 years and been doing a variety of things to serve the community, just depending on the needs as they've evolved over time. It started out serving the very immediate needs of families, like if you can imagine this, bringing coal to people so they could have heat in the winter, uh, food, clothing, those kinds of uh, very basic needs. It was seen out of a concern from some of our uh, really uh, prominent citizens back in the day who really had a concern for our neighbors. So that that mission continues today that we have a concern for our neighbors who are especially struggling. So uh, today and actually over the last many decades, the primary service line that we have is to provide a variety of mental health services and primarily a focus on providing those for folks who don't have another way another means to receive those services. So folks that are that are really economically disadvantaged. We know that uh, many of us, you and I probably, if we have mental health challenges or other challenges, we, we have the resources to face those and can find those on our own. But for many people in our community, they just don't have the resources. So uh, we have a special heart for the poor, as we like to say, and serving those who, who uh, don't have really the means. Now, David is a licensed social worker in addition to being the president of the organization and uh, has served as executive director of the Secretariat of Catholic Charities and Family Members Ministries for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Uh, so you have a, a long experience with a lot of this stuff. And I, I want to, you know, I have some experience. I went to therapy. I have some personal experience. And I can tell you that from where I was at, before I went to access mental health services to where I'm at now, it is a night and day change, but I'm fortunate to have a job that allowed me to afford those services. And mental health services, you tell me, you're the expert, it seems to, it seems to be a key to unlocking so many benefits uh, of in terms of just better jobs, better relationships, less domestic violence. So... What is the importance of mental health that you've seen over the course of your career in just the people that you've worked with? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. Sitting at the, really the foundation of so many other important factors in our lives is our is is, is mental health, good mental health. And when that uh, when we experience, and most of us have challenges either in our own lives and our families' lives, where um, that that foundation can get shaken, and that's when we we need to sometimes seek professional help. Um, 
and th- those resources are, you know, scarce for some. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we like to say we're available for folks who have no other way. And so um, what, what that allows is, as you kind of alluded to, when somebody has a challenge with their mental health, they can't uh, find a job or keep a job or um, function in a school setting. You know, a lot of kids that have mental illness, mental health challenges just can't, um, can't focus and, and do their schoolwork. So it obviously impacts so many things. And what we're, we've been seeing over the years in the evolution of the time that I've been a social worker is, is a, a greater awareness and acceptance for people um, seeking mental health counseling and support. Uh, it used to be kind of a taboo thing to think. We used to always hear people say, oh, I'm not going to see a counselor. I'm not crazy. And it has nothing to do with being crazy, but just uh, experiencing challenges that are a little bit bigger than we can handle on our own. And we need sometimes somebody with a different perspective, other than family and friends that have no kind of vested interest in us uh, and connection to us, but somebody who, who can guide us through the challenges. And it's, you know, people have varying levels of mental health challenges for sure. Um, the folks that we see at Families First tend to be those who've experienced pretty, pretty dramatic changes in their lives. We have we have a lot of staff who deal with domestic violence, and unfortunately, that's all too common in our community. The other one is sexual violence. Again, far, far too, too often that that's um, an experience that too many people in our community have. So we have counselors that are there to help folks recover from that trauma. Those are some of the most... Um, Oh, violating traumas that anybody could experience to be abused or neglected or sexually abused. So um, as I said, we, Families First is kind of there to, to meet people in some of those really, really tough challenges. The other one that is all too common, and we all have some um, somebody in our lives probably that has experienced substance abuse, and uh, whether that's alcohol or drugs, um, where we have counselors that, that help folks navigate those challenges. We don't do any inpatient work. There are those in our community who do everything we do is on an outpatient basis. And um, which leads me to, to say that in this time of quarantine, we've segued into a, a whole different way of providing services and that's doing it virtually something that we really didn't do at all before this, but now everything we're delivering is we're doing it virtually. We've like a lot of folks have gotten a zoom account and all of our <laughs> counselors now have access to that and they're delivering one-on-one counseling services virtually as well as uh, even doing group counseling which we didn't really imagine doing but some of our counselors are reporting that it's really effective and for the folks that we serve who face so many other life challenges it overcomes some of the difficulties with transportation for instance many of our folks are on public uh, bus service and not having to navigate that whole system take time off from work they all the added stress that that creates so um, it's it's really been a remarkable experience, and we're finding that it's it's been very effective, very helpful. We find that people are some of our counselors are reporting that folks at home, uh, sitting in their their living room or in their bedroom or wherever they may be, are much more open and, and more um, more able to access some of the challenges that they're having and talk about those. So it's it's been interesting, and we're really hoping that even after this is over, that we can augment the face to face services for some where virtual is just a better way to make that happen. Yeah, that's really interesting. I Again, to relate my own experience, I had a telehealth session with my therapist about two weeks ago because it's just a lot of – there's a lot of challenges, and I'm in a, a very comfortable situation. Um, I imagine there are a lot of people who aren't in a comfortable situation that are still struggling. Like what, are, what are some of the common themes – you know, without violating any HIPAA or anything, but what are some of the common themes that you're seeing from people through the last three months? 
Yeah, by far the greatest stress, as, as you could probably well imagine, is the financial stress for so many. We have, you know, during the best of times, we're serving folks that are on the margins economically and, you know, maybe a paycheck or two from eviction or a loss of job um, can mean just devastation. So folks that we serve have certainly lost their jobs, and many of them, great numbers. And um, the financial challenges that presents are just uh, overwhelming for some. So that that stress is um, really, really challenging. We were, we actually staff and, and take care of the, the Indianapolis crisis and suicide hotline, when it's something I certainly want your listeners to be aware of, that there is that resource if you feel completely alone and don't have anybody you think you can call, you always have the access to that line. And um, a, a, either a uh, staff member or a tr- very highly trained volunteer will answer that call. And so to help people kind of navigate those challenging feelings, there's there's just a, a, a sense of hopelessness for some. Um, if you've lost your job, if you don't see it coming back, or you're in an industry that's, that's just uh, really suffering, especially the hospitality restaurant industry, those kinds of folks are really challenged and feeling a bit hopeless. So that, that can leave people feeling kind of at the end of the rope and where they um, we've obviously had, had a, an increase in people uh, contemplating suicide. And that's, that's certainly a huge, huge concern. I just want folks out there that are listening to know that you don't, um, you, you don't have to navigate this alone. And I, I don't know if you want to, if you'll be able to list those phone numbers, we also Absolutely. answer via text. So I want to make sure people have those resources available. To we will put those on our website. Now hear this indie.com. If you know the phone number, please feel free to share. Yeah, the local number, if you're calling from Central Indiana, is 317-251-7575 or 800-273-8255. And as I mentioned, too, we also, for some folks, they don't even want to talk to anybody. They're, they, they just prefer to text, and certainly younger people are taking advantage of text. So they can just t- text the letter CSIS, C-S-I-S to this number, 839 839- 863 and somebody will reply via text if you want to just communicate that way that's perfectly fine if you want to then turn it into a phone call you can also do that as well have you seen uh, what what order of magnitude and increase if at all have you seen over the the course of the pandemic An increase of 300 percent wow okay yeah. so i think sometimes a barrier to calling a hotline like that is not knowing what they're going to get when they dial the number so if i were to call that number What's the process? Who answers the phone? How does it work? Yeah, good question. You know, you'll likely hear music as you wait, and typically our, we're pretty proud that our wait time isn't very long, but then somebody will just answer and let them, they'll, they'll give you their name and ask, who am I talking to? You have the right to tell them your name or make up a name. It doesn't matter. They can't see you. So um, then, it, then it just becomes an opportunity for, for the counselor, the person calling or a person answering just to listen to you. And that's really what they're really uh, trained to do is listen. And as they kind of uncover what, what you're facing, then then help you to um, make some decisions as far as perhaps some next steps. Who could you reach out to? What are the resources in your community? If somebody's just struggling with a financial challenges, as I mentioned, is so popular or common right now, um, our, our our folks can point you to resources. There's so much more available than most people realize. It's just, there's no reason for somebody to suffer um, in this community. There's, there's a soup kitchen, a, a shelter open, you know, anywhere, any time of the day. Um, they, they just sometimes need to know about those resources. Yeah. And there is absolutely no shame in asking for help when you need it. 
No, not at all, for sure. So what are some other things that you, you've you talked about telehealth, you've talked about the hotline, you've talked about therapy. In, in terms of connecting services, what other sort of wraparound services do you have in terms of you, you talk to somebody in those situations or you have clients? What sort of support do you have at that next step in helping people get to where they need to go? Well, we do provide uh, in some of our programs, people can continue on in, in support groups. So we have groups and some of some of those are even run by uh, volunteers who have graduated from those programs. They can continue to receive that support because what we find if somebody has been, for instance, in a uh, uh, in a substance abusing, abusing lifestyle that once they get into recovery, for instance, they go back um, to their normal day-to-day routine, hang around the same people they always did. And it's, it's really easy to fall back into that lifestyle. So we try to help them replace that with some positive folks. And so there's support groups for folks um, to get involved in that, that kind of a, a peer support group, if you will. And of course we know of AA and NA and some of those resources, and we were very aware of what those opportunities are in the community too. So we always encourage people to stay connected to the positive people in their life in some way. And we help provide some of those for them. We're talking to David Seiler, who is the president of Families First here in Indianapolis. Their website is familiesfirstindiana.org. My name is Chris Spengler. You're listening to Now Hear This. Uh, in terms of those support groups, are you doing those online as well right now? How are you managing that? Yep, we sure are. We're providing those online. Yeah, which, which is, it's remarkable. And thank goodness that even folks who struggle economically typically have a smartphone and that enables them then to connect virtually if, if um, they want to want to be seen and do that. If you don't, you can just certainly do that uh, via the standard telephone call. So another service that uh, I see listed here is parenting education. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important and what you do in terms of educating parents? Yeah, so critical. We, we, we tend to think that you just kind of have a baby, you know how to parent. and <laughs> It just doesn't work that way. We, a lot of folks have had very poor parenting as examples growing up in abusive or neglectful or, or homes that are challenged by um, really poor parenting. So uh, we, we know that that's a, that's a need in the community. So we provide uh, you know, out in the community, we go to community centers, YMCA's, you name it, schools, and kind of teach uh, parenting. And, and it's really remarkable how many people realize, oh, that's how parenting is supposed to go. And, oh, you're not, you're not supposed to hit your kids. I mean, things that most of us would take for granted, a lot of folks don't know. And what, what's kind of, we try to normalize what, what good parenting should look like and feel like. And so, we provide that out in the community. We have classes here at our, uh, well, we used to on site um, provide that, but I think we're doing some of those online too as parenting classes for folks who want to participate in that. And that's, again, it's something that somebody, nobody you mentioned not being ashamed to ask for help. You shouldn't be ashamed to ask for help to be a parent. I've, I've parented five kids and they're mostly grown now, but I still can learn a lot. So <laughs> all of us can learn something new and new tips, especially at a time like this when we're home and quarantine. I have incredible respect for those parents who are homeschooling while they're trying to do their job and manage life in a whole different environment. And um, there, we have a lot of resources on our website. You mentioned that, that folks can go there. There's lots of videos, tips, things you can do with your kids, how to manage your stress. So I hope folks, your, your listeners will go to the, the website and, and find a whole bunch of resources available to them there. Yeah. Again, that is familiesfirstindiana.org. And Kind of on on top of that, you have a father engagement case management service. And what is that? And what do you find is important in that program? 
that program is is um, the the folks that come to us through there are through the Department of Children's Services. So th- those are fathers who have, for whatever reason, have gotten uh, kind of estranged from their kids or, or some, in some cases, don't even know that they, they have a child out there. And then it's our job or the job of those case managers to first locate those fathers. Sometimes they may be in jail or prison and let them know that um, that uh, they have resources available to them to get involved in their child's life and to learn about what being a good dad is. And there's just an, some amazing success success stories of dads who, um, you know, just, just didn't know what being a good dad was like and feel really supported that, hey, now I can do this and I do want to now get involved with my child. Yeah, I think in both of those, people, we often say the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but if you have no idea how to tie a set of boots it's it's a little bit difficult so that's that's great so yeah. uh, d- what kind of volunteer structure do you have do you, do you accept volunteers is it all full-time staff if people wanted to get involved what are some ways that they could yeah great question we, during usual times we use quite a few volunteers right now we're a little bit challenged to even keep the volunteers that we have going cuz a lot of it is face to face but i i hope Folks will visit the website and and kind of learn about what those volunteer opportunities are. But we have folks that are part of our sexual response um, team. So they'll actually be trained and go to a hospital when somebody shows up as a victim of sexual violence so um, that you can be there and just kind of hold a hand and be an advocate for that person who's going through that trauma. We have folks who volunteer on the crisis and suicide hotline. We we always need more volunteers for that. and with some of those peer support groups I mentioned, we have folks who help facilitate those groups. And so for all the things, we have great training. We have a volunteer coordinator, actually two of them, who do volunteer, kind of work with our volunteers to get them trained so they feel that they're, they can be effective in whatever role. So uh, we have lots of volunteer opportunities. As I said, right now, it's just a little bit challenging, but soon we'll hopefully be back to where we, we need many more again. So uh, talking a little bit more about how people can support your work, uh, can you tell us about Wishful Wednesday on your social media? If you want to go follow, follow uh, them uh, at familiesfirstindiana.org. What is Wishful Wednesday? Yeah, each Wednesday we gather a list of things that our clients need uh, or the agency needs. For instance, we put out recently we need some thermometers. So when we come back, we'll be able to do that kind of testing when folks come in our facility. We had one donated just today, so I'm happy that it's working but uh, we put out pleas for PPE that we're going to need when we come back. And so, uh, but if our, sometimes from time to time, a client may need, um, you know, some kind of furniture or something for their children for school, a backpack. We put those needs up there and invite the community to respond. And it's, uh, it's just, we're always amazed at the generosity that's out there. Speaking of generosity, I know that uh, usually cash donations or financial gifts of some sort are the most important in terms of operating any nonprofit. Can you talk about some fundraising strategies? How can people give if they want to? Yeah, there's lots of ways. We, we invite people to do their own fundraisers online, which has become a great popular thing among young people and kind of get that uh, support from their friends and family. Uh, as you said, there, there's nothing like uh, just good old hard cash for an organization because then we can, we can spend it and use it in the way that's most needed because it, it changes from today, day to day. You know, we we're, we've had to spend, Oh gosh, probably twenty twenty five thousand dollars just on it equipment to get us, us up to running to doing virtual. We've gotten some support from the community. So it allows us to adapt to some of the changes. So that's always, always best. 
Well, that's very, very good. So, again, their website is familiesfirstindiana.org if you would like to get involved. I, I end with this question of everyone because you're in the day-to-day of it. You're you're in your field constantly, but the rest of us are kind of living our lives and we're in our own fields. So what is the thing that you see on a daily basis that you think, man, I wish everybody knew what I see here. I wish everybody could understand this thing about my work. What is that? Probably more than anything, it's that help is available. Um, you know, there, we all know a story of somebody who's attempted suicide or actually succeeded in taking their own life. And, and it always gives me incredible pause, as I'm sure it does everybody to think if they only knew that this number was available, if, if they only knew this resource was out there. So that's that's probably it. You know, you know no matter what challenge you're facing, the, the community cares, whether you believe it or not. There, is, there are folks like us out here who care and want to get you connected and get you the help you need. David Seiler, president of Families First, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Chris. Today, we're tackling a subject that is uh, very important to me, and I know to uh, our next guest, it is Laura Berry, who is the executive director of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And this has been a trying time, I can imagine, for many people who are in abusive relationships and in real danger Thank you for joining me, Laura. What, what, is, what is happening in the middle of this pandemic for those who are suffering uh, from domestic violence? Thanks for having me and letting me be part of this to talk about the issues of domestic violence during this pandemic. Yeah, during this time, we're seeing increases in domestic violence and increases, unfortunately, in our homicide rate, which really are very concerning to us who are working in this field. So, You know, we've seen about a 90% increase in domestic homicides for a period of March through October compared to the same period of time last year. And that really can be contributed, directly contributed to COVID. And that's a result of people being isolated at home, a downturn in the economy and loss of their income, increase in stressors increase in alcohol consumption. While alcohol doesn't cause domestic violence, the increased usage um, has a tendency to make domestic violence increase in frequency and severity. And those stressors have a tendency to increase our lethality. So we know all of those contributing factors are what are leading to the increase in the risk and the lethality for domestic violence. Also with isolation for those who are staying at home, there's a sense and a feeling that individuals can't reach out or don't feel comfortable reaching out for support and services. Even though our programs and our services are open and available, it's often not um, safe for them to call for supportive services or to shelter. So knowing that we're open is critically important and that if they are in extreme danger, that 911 is a critical and important call to make. We're speaking to Laura Berry, head, uh, the executive director of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and their website is icadvinc.org. That's an important point, and we, uh, we t- covered this early in the pandemic, um, but I'd like to revisit it because if someone is listening uh, this afternoon and they're concerned about a loved one or they're concerned about themselves – how, how do you intercede or how can they get help in a way that is safe? Because oftentimes phones are monitored, computers are monitored. 
what tips do you have to maybe a person who's hearing this uh, or, or has a friend that needs to get out? How do they go about that in a safe way? Right. So it's incredibly difficult since we're not seeing our neighbors, our friends. We're not going to work as often as we used to. We're working from home more often. We're doing Zoom calls, right? Um, So we might still be seeing people in different ways than we have before. So trying to connect in unique and different ways to ask somebody if they need help or if things or how things are going in their home um, is still a way to ask an individual if they need help or support or how things are are going. So you can ask somebody in a non-confrontational way if things are stable in their household, if they need support, just to do check-ins that seem non-threatening with an individual. So um, just ask about everyday things and if how the stressors are going, if they need anything, knowing if they need support that you're there for them. And also still encouraging, we are finding that if somebody is in a serious situation, that they are making calls to 911 when they um, are in need of services. We have seen a significant uptick in calls to 911. So we are recognizing that one, levels of violence are increasing. They are able and they are making those calls for services. So if you're a friend or if you're a loved one, still trying to connect in ways through phone calls, through text, and asking non-leading questions that might indicate that you're checking in on their safety, but just generally, hey, how are things going at home? What are you doing? What are you and the kids doing? Um, asking if you're getting out um, in a non-threatening way that might be an indication if violence is, is occurring in the home. So what do you do if you know someone's in a dangerous situation and they're just not willing to leave or confront the situation or they're, they're, they're just not ready? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. How do you handle that? Absolutely. And that's very common. So the first thing that we always say is those who are in a violent situation, survivors, they're the best predictor of their own safety. So we may want to determine for that individual that it's time for them to leave. We're not able to make that decision for them because they are the best person to determine when it is for them to leave. All we can do is say that there are services available for them, that they don't deserve to be in a violent situation. If there's children in the household, it's better for them. And what we can say is it's better for your children to live in a, uh, an environment that's free from violence and intimidation, and that there are ways to be able to get out of that situation and that it's not their fault. And that it's a continued conversation to support that individual to make that choice for themselves. What we have to recognize, because it's easier for those of us who are not in a violent situation to understand or need to understand that there are so many barriers for an individual who's in a violent relationship to leave because many of those are financial in nature. And that could be they're facing barriers of potentially being homeless and or having to live in a shelter with their children who are then uprooted and away from their friends and other support systems on a daily basis. And that is not too appealing. No, that, that can be very hard. And, and finances seem in situations that I've run across over my life, that seems to be the main motivator. I'm not sure how to, to get out of this. Do you have programs to help kind of fight that? Can you walk us through the programs at the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence? 
Absolutely. And thanks for asking. One of the things, you know, survivors have said to us, we embarked on a really a three-year study to talk to survivors about what's kind of the number one things that keeps them in a violent relationship. And financial instability is really the number one thing that keeps them in a relationship even longer than they normally would. So programs that the coalition offers is um, housing stability. So we have launched a housing project where survivors can enter into what's a coordinated entry system and access safe and affordable and stable housing. So this is a really big key to helping survivors be able to exit a violent home and live independently. And then other financial flexible resources, studies and resources and um, research has shown to us that oftentimes a survivor may only need anywhere from $400 to $1,000 to be able to make that transition from a violent home to self-sufficiency and stability along with uh, affordable housing. So the coalition has um, created 165 housing units throughout the state of Indiana and partnered with member programs to offer that capability. The other critical service that often survivors need is access to affordable or free legal services. So the coalition offers legal services um, free of charge to survivors who need to take that next step. That's one of the services. We also partner with and help provide direct access to emergency shelter, transportation, flex funding, to survivors. We do prevention programming, education, training, awareness, and um, a whole variety that helps survivors uh, be able to leave and safely leave and stay away from that violent relationship. Yeah, one of the, the, I see a lot of confusion. I mean, it's really hard, especially for, you know, it's usually women, but there are men that suffer domestic violence, are there not? Absolutely. So about um, last year, we see it's, it's about under 1% of the population that we serve that are men, but we see men and men with children who are accessing services um, in the state of Indiana. So it's not just women, predominantly it's women that we serve, um, but both men and women are um, impacted by intimate personal violence. The thing that I have noticed is that when you're in a relationship like that, you're gaslit so much that you're so confused mm-hmm. and you just need a lifeline. So you, it sounds like you offer that lifeline just to help guide people where they need to go. And how do people contact you and get in touch with, with the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence? Um, so you gave our website, icadvinc.org or 317-917-3685. Uh, is a good way to get a hold of us um, during this time. And then also here in central Indiana, 211 is a great resource because that will link you to all of the service providers in central Indiana. So if I were to ask you uh, like a, a shining example of your work, somebody that seemed to be in a hopeless position that is thriving now, what are a, a scenario or two that you could share with us? So a great one actually happens to be, um, there is an article on the front page of the Indiana Lawyer today of a, of a case. Um, normally, we wouldn't share a survivor's name because that's confidential. But there is a woman that we, since it's in the paper, we can talk about it, that is an individual that um, 
sought services from us about three years ago, who was virtually homeless, her and her son, that was involved in a domestic violence situation by her husband, and it was in the criminal justice system and was just not getting the response that she needed. And it also had a very complex legal situation to it, where the husband had taken out a business in her name and had unbeknownst to her, put her in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And nobody had responded to her request for services. She wasn't getting the response she needed from the criminal justice system. And she was definitely not getting any support, legal support that she needed in solving what was mounting to her having, I can't even tell you the amount of legal uh, debt and obligation that she had. And she reached out to us Uh, for just really some guidance. And we were able to provide her legal counsel and work with the criminal justice system to get her a positive solution. So um, three years later, we were able to wipe out the um, business liability and debt, um, divorce, and a positive outcome in a criminal case, thanks to major partners with Ice Miller, Barnes & Thornburg, and an attorney we um, were able to provide her with um, kind of low means and um, fees that we're able to support. So three years for a survivor that would not have had access that would have her and her son would have been homeless otherwise and or potentially remaining in a violent situation. That's excellent. That's great. Um, final question. What do you see every day in your work that you wish everybody could see and understand? Every day. Um, I would say resilience. I see resilience in the individuals that we work with, um, that they are capable. There is this there is this, I think, misunderstanding that survivors of domestic violence are downtrodden, that they're in this situation because they've chosen this situation, that they um, are not like you and I, and that we would not we would not allow ourselves to be in this situation. And they are no different than any of the rest of us. And that you brought up that they get gaslighted. No individual in their right mind would ever have found themselves in a domestic violence situation if the incident started with physical violence. If we all entered into a relationship that started out with an initial hit, we would have all left that relationship immediately. But it starts off with manipulation, control, um, emotional and psychological abuse that ends up um, wearing down an individual. And so what I would say is... These are some of the most incredible, strong individuals that have navigated circumstances in their life that keep themselves and their children safe on a daily basis that I just can't imagine how they oftentimes keep going. And I'm in awe and often incredibly inspired by how they um, navigate and continue to become survivors on a daily basis. The things that I find challenging, on the other hand, 
is this homicide rate that we're now enduring and knowing that we as a community and a society need to hold each other accountable and make that number different. And I think we can do that and change that norm because we don't find domestic violence homicides inevitable. We think it's all preventable. Laura Berry, Executive Director of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Their website is icadvinc.org. Thank you so much for joining me. I truly appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. It was great. Today, I am talking to Joy's House, which is a great organization located here in Indianapolis. Their website is joyshouse.org. And I am speaking to Tina McIntosh, who is the president and CEO. Thank you so much for joining me. Tell us a little bit about Joy's House. Sorry. Sure. Joy's House has been a part of the Indianapolis and Indiana community for 21 years now, which as the founder is really hard for me to um, to think of and to admit sometimes, to be honest, Chris. Um, but Joyce House is an adult day service is how most people know us. So if you aren't familiar with that concept, it is, I always hesitate a little bit. It's much like childcare, but I hesitate because we're talking about adults. Sure. So these are adults who have some kind of a life-altering diagnosis. It might be Alzheimer's or a related dementia. It might be Parkinson's. It might be MS, a uh, result of a stroke or younger adults who are living with some kind of a developmental disability or something that they've been born with. And so uh, they come to us during the day and we're open Monday through Friday. We have a broader location and a location at UND. And uh, then they go home to be with their families and live in their own homes and sit on their own couch and eat at their own dining room table. And our goal is to help keep them in that home, hopefully until the day they take their last breath. And then the other side of our mission is caregiver support services, which I think we'll probably talk about because it is such a big thing right now in the world. Yeah, I have had several family family members struggle with uh, Alzheimer's, and uh, it is it, it, you know n- not to single one thing out, but it's the thing that I'm most familiar with. And w- what you find is that the the partner is usually very overtaxed because a lot of times, you know, in in this particular case, they were older family members themselves and then they developed it. And so then you have someone coming in and they're ill-equipped to deal with it because they're another family member. I mean, it has to make such a difference when somebody who has resources and uh, just general knowledge comes in. Can you, can you give us an idea of when you know, what is a situation like in general, you know, before Joy's house is, is brought into this equation between these two people? And what does it look like after? Oh, my golly. Yeah. Yes, I can. Um, you know, before what we usually find is someone has taken on a thousand different roles. So no longer am I just the daughter. I'm the daughter. I'm the driver. I'm the nurse. I'm the cook. I'm the, you know, housekeeper. I'm the physician, you know, I become all of these things that I am quite honestly ill-equipped to be. And from a mental perspective, I just want to be the daughter. You know, I want to go back to being the daughter. And so we we lose some identity as we're caregiving. Uh, families are, they're exhausted, you know, they're physically exhausted because it takes a lot to, and I'm, and I'm sorry to hear you understand Alzheimer's that well, um, because it becomes personal when we talk about it. You know, it Absolutely. takes a lot to transfer um your grandfather from a bed 
to a standing position, to a toilet, to a shower, you know, walking down the hall, whatever it is, it, it becomes very physically taxing for family members, but it's also emotionally and financially, it's exhausting too. So we see family dynamics start to creep in. You know, if I'm caring for my mom, maybe my brother and sister don't like the way I'm doing that. And so it's interesting that we see these people who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, all of a sudden take on the roles they had when they were in high school. Mm. You know, you can see it start to creep in. So there, there are family dynamics that come into play, which makes it more exhausting. Uh, and for us at Joy's House, we find that families don't come to us until it's a little late in the game. I always say if it's, I'm a visual learner. So if it's an alphabet and maybe they should have come to us around, I don't know, D or E in the alphabet, we see them at like LMNOP, you know, <laughs> right. when it's just a little, it's a little late. And so what we do is we're able to come in and scoop them up, help everybody find their roles and their dynamics again, walk them through the process that comes with these life altering diagnoses uh, and then help them kind of put the pieces back together and just find, find the rhythm again with some, what is called respite in the business. It's really some relief for yeah. them so that they can go back to enjoying the moments that they have, because, you know, specifically when we're talking Alzheimer's, let's not kid ourselves is a nasty disease. You know, it's, it's called the long goodbye for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's really our job. I say all the time that anything we do at Joyce House, we want to feel embracing. And at a time right now when we can't actually like tackle each other with the hugs that we want to give, uh, there's something really beautiful about being to being able to embrace people. Yeah, the just the the break, you know, going somewhere for for let's say the person who is struggling with Alzheimer's having the the other care for the caregiver just to get an afternoon away, but I imagine it's also incredibly important for that social contact, you know, the, the mental stimulation and environment change for the person who's suffering. Is it not? It is. I, you know, we give the guest, which is what we call our clients, the people who come and spend their days with us. We give the guest a reason to get up in the morning, you know, a reason to brush their teeth and put on their clothes and put on shoes and uh, come out into the world and give them kind of like cheers. You know, I might be showing my age here, but we get to be their cheers where they come in and we all know their name and we know their diagnosis and we know how to redirect them or help them in the restroom or with medications. But more importantly, we know who they've been their entire lives and who they are and what they like and what they don't like. You know, these are adults. And so we come with a lot of uh, a lot of history in our lives. And I think you mentioned something too about just being able to give a break for the caregivers. Sometimes it's as much being able to look another caregiver in the eyes and say, forgive me here, but this really sucks. Yeah. You know, this is really hard and have somebody not try and solve the problem for you, but just say, you're right. It does suck. Thank God we're in this together. Yeah. That support staff. Um, you, you know, I'll be honest, my, my grandparents are in a facility, uh, so they're fortunate enough to be able to be in a facility. And, and COVID has been very difficult for my grandfather because he would go visit my grandmother every day. Yes. And so now he gets to see her three times a week, but he can't touch her. Uh, this is, you know, and, and that has eroded his, her ability to remember him. So it's been, it's been a very difficult time. Uh, for them because of that lack of that loss of connection for a few months. How have uh, you and your guests and caregivers, how have you all been navigating the pandemic and, and trying to help uh, deal with some of that? Because I know he's he's greatly helped by the fact that there's a staff and she's cared for, 
you know, and that, that takes some of the edge off. Yeah. Um, I think like, like anyone, this has been really hard. You know, uh, we saw our guests left us on March 17th of this year was the day that we closed down to, to go into quarantine and, um, or lockdown or whatever you want to call it, but, you know, to go into this time. And when we opened our doors back up on July 1st, now we've been keeping in touch with families. We had done the drive-by parades. We had done the visits. You know, we'd done all those things that you would imagine that we all really um, learned to do. When, we, when people came back to us, it was really, really hard. Most of our folks had progressed with their diagnoses, um, which progressed not being the good word right. know, in that sentence, but um, had declined. And uh, it changes just hard. And when it, it showed us, we were almost like a case study at that point. It showed us what value our adult day service brought for the guest and for the caregivers. I mean, we could see it happening. As a matter of fact, we lost about 35% of our folks who normally attended mm. um, either passed away or declined to the point where they had to look at alternative long-term care. Um you know, one of the beautiful things has, it's a new, so we're creating new habits. Mm -hmm. And after being gone that long, particularly our folks with dementia, maybe we were back at square one with them, right? So they might not know our names, but they know we're a safe place. They know the feeling that comes with Joy's house. Well, they lost a little bit of that. And so we had one family in particular comes to mind and she said, you know, mom just doesn't want to come and I'm really struggling. And we said, do you remember how this was when you started with us at Joy's house seven years ago? Like we're back at that square one, but we've got this together. And she stayed with it and stayed with it and brought mom every, every day on a regular basis. And it was beautiful for us, Chris, to be able to snap a, a photo of mom and send it to her daughter to say, look, she's smiling. She was participating. And she said, oh my golly, that I haven't seen that smile since the middle of March. Since yeah. She left Joy's house. So, you know, I think you're right when you talk about um, for your grandfather, he finds that comfort knowing the staff is there. I, you know, staff in long-term care, and we're healthcare as well at Joy's House, but staff in this industry, I think we sometimes, um, I mean, let's be honest, in nursing homes in particular, don't always get the best reputation, right? People are really hard on, on that, but that's a hard job to do. And people who are in this line of work in long-term care and Joy's House and other places, man, we love what we do. And we love these residents and these guests that come. And so I, I really hope that people see that during this time and that we're all lifted up, particularly long-term care. Uh, I just think it takes special people to be working with an older population and um, we're better as a community. We now know for sure as a result you know, of them. Yeah. Do you have any, have you talked about the wintertime and the cold and flu season? I mean, my, my read on everything is we'll, we'll treat every cold and flu like it, it's COVID, especially with the population, the age population that sounds like you're, you're interacting most with. How do you prepare for a long winter? Do you have any insights? Do you do you, have you thought about that yet? Is it too early for a beer in this conversation? <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. I it's... feel like how do we solve the problems of the world? But uh, I just keep saying it's rough. You know, we're trying to muddle our way through figuring out how do we. So at Joyce House, a big thing for us is we, I always say we're a bunch of goofballs, and we just you know we're dealing with some serious life issues, but we do it in such a manner that our culture is professional, but so informal and so full of love and joy, not to be too corny. I know it's in our name, but um, being able to serve people again in this capacity is wonderful, but 
but we've had to do it with smaller numbers, you know, because of social distancing. Try keeping a mask on the folks that come to Joy's house. <laughs> we do our best, and my staff is incredible. They're exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, trying to keep a mask on someone who doesn't want it, uh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> but our numbers of, of attendees every day is smaller than what we're used to. At our broader location, we're used to up to 40, and right now we're serving about 20 people a day. Um, as we get into winter, I think you're right. We lose our outdoor space and at home, you lose your outdoor space. You can't be outdoor in the same way. And, and I, you are exactly right with the cold and flu season. And now we throw in COVID every cough, right? I mean, how are you like every cough I have, I have allergies. And every time I cough, I'm like, there it is. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going down, you know? Um, so we're, you know, just diligent about watching, our guests and taking temperatures and doing all the things you're supposed to do uh, where I really worry is for the caregivers at home. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a challenge. Uh, we don't know what people do when, when they're home, we're not there with them. So we advise them the best that we can and try and give them helpful tips and supplies and those kinds of things. But um, I think the caregiving at home is going to be the tough piece. So you mentioned the, on the alphabet, the LMNOP part, um, and a lot of that can be caused by the family member who is suffering, you know, denying maybe reality or fighting any kind of intervention whatsoever. And I, I have to imagine that somebody out there is listening right now thinking of a family member that they, they know needs some intervention, um, you know, many kinds and is resistant to it. But you know that it's going to be the best thing ever. And I will say in our case, that was that that happened. And. Life is much better at this point once there was intervention. Um, but how, how do you, if you're the caregiver or a concerned family member, what strategies would you advise? How do you intervene in that situation with dignity and respect and, and try to persuade the person that doesn't want to get in the game, essentially, to start pursuing help and the things that Joy's House brings us. Again, we're talking to Tina McIntosh, who is the president and CEO of Joy's House, joyshouse.org. Um, what advice would you have for somebody like that? It's a couple of things. One, anytime we're working with someone who would be for us, the guest or the patient or the you know person living with a diagnosis, um, listening is key, which here I say that to you who, you know, you prompt questions of folks and listen and then share that with other people. But I just have to think about what you do. Chris, how much do you learn just by listening to people that you're interviewing? Oh, a ton. You know? Yeah. Like you're the guy you want in a, um, in a trivia night. I want you <laughs> on my team, you know, you know, all kinds of stuff. And and I think if we would listen more instead of trying to tell people what it is that they want or what we want them to believe, um, empower them to help be a part of the decision, it's really going to help. And if at first they get defensive, uh, now dementia is different, but at first if somebody gets defensive, just give them some information, listen to them, listen to their concerns and their, you know, where they're pushing back and walk away for a while and say, hey, I'm going to give you some time to think about it. It doesn't seem like it's sitting very well but I'll circle back with you in a few days. And I think you'd be surprised at how much people come around to that way of thinking if we plant the seed. I don't mean manipulate them, although there is some of that too. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Sometimes that happens, but, or needs to happen. Um, but really listening. And then the other thing is caregivers or loved ones at any time can uh, do their homework. 
you know, they can do their homework and collect information and know their contacts. Uh, and then you've got that information so that when the time comes, you know who it is you want to be calling. There's nothing wrong with doing your homework in advance. That kind of fills in that gap period. Yeah. Um, if you hear the weird sounds, by the way, it's my boxer. My <laughs> dog is like in my face. So Who is the cutest dog? This is such a cute dog. What's, what's your dog's name? Her name is Phoebe. Looks like she a Phoebe. Is, yeah, she's pretty sweet. Thank you. Uh, one of the one of the fun things about the you know life in the COVID era is doing these interviews and and seeing toddlers and, and dogs. Yes. And, uh, We're um, still forgiving nowadays, thank goodness, because we all need a little mercy and grace. Yeah. So you know, and I, I've sort of dwelled on the memory care, but are there other what other situations do you what other situations are guests in that you uh, help facilitate? There's so much. I mean. And the guess is one thing. I think, you know, there's a lot of that loneliness and there's a lot of, um, oh, just needing activities and some normalcy in our, in our lives, normalcy in our lives. But it's really the caregivers that I am as concerned about as anyone because, uh, again, you unfortunately understand this, but if the primary caregiver burns out, then we have a problem. And so trying to figure out during this time of COVID when we are doing a thousand different things to try to bring normal or create our new normal, um, how are we listening to caregivers as to what they need and then arming them with that information? So, you know, we do a lot of different things. If someone is listening and is a caregiver or knows a caregiver, they can email me directly at Tina, T-I-N-A, at Joy's House. It's J-O-Y-S, but Tina at joyshouse.org. And, um, we've got some things for them that will help them, you know, whether it's our care kit that helps you keep information together or it's some resource groups we have, or, you know, we've got lots of different things for caregivers, but we do have a virtual town hall meeting coming up uh, in September on September 17th in the morning from nine to 10. And if someone's interested in, in learning about that, they can also email me at tinajoyshouse.org or go to Facebook. We'll have it all posted on Facebook live as well. Tell us what in these support groups that has to be incredibly important. I mean, I've been a part of several support groups, and just knowing I'm my feelings aren't weird or abnormal is so comforting. I mean, what what yes. do people experience when they come to the these support groups? Well, we try and design ours so that it's not um, it's not the group where you come in and sit down, Chris, and and you're dreading the fact that. Uh, Mary, Marianne walks in the door because you know she's just going to take over the conversation and <laughs> talk for 47 minutes. You know, yeah. you, know you know the lady. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know the one. Um, but we really, we do it as a resource. So typically there's going to be a speaker or someone there who can help you navigate, whether it's learning how to transfer train your loved one or transfer your loved one or bathe them or how to organize food on a plate so they're eating better. Um, things to do for yourself as a caregiver to uh, be stronger and better and continue on. And so uh, we'll have that. And then there'll be time for conversation. And we do have pre-COVID obviously had a lot of the social opportunities too. And so we're, we're trying to figure out right now, what does that look like as we're moving through COVID and in the future? So what if, it, what does my loved one do if they come, if, if they're a guest at Joy's house, what sort of activities take place there? A lot. Um, and right now with COVID, it is different than it was before. We're trying to figure out what our new normal looks like. But 
there is always going to be, first of all, there's going to be food. We find that folks eat better when they're with us than they do typically at home, which is true. I mean, you think if you and I went out and grabbed breakfast, I'm probably going to eat more at breakfast because I'm engaged in conversation right. with you than if I'm home by myself. Mm-hmm. So um, there's the nutritional aspect of it, but getting people to get up and, and exercise and move their bodies again, if I'm in a group setting and everybody is doing chair aerobics or taking a stroll outside or throwing a ball around or whatever it is, I might not even look at it as exercise, but it's way more than I'm doing if I'm home by myself. Yeah. Um, but it's really the social part as much as anything. It is having a reason to get up and get out of bed and get yourself ready and out into the world and coming in a place that is designed to be safe physically, but emotionally too, you know, you're safe there and you can share what's going on in your life. If it's a, you know, if you're challenged with something or if you want to bring pictures of family, or if you want to sit down and just have a conversation, there is something really beautiful. I'm saying this about social interaction and I'm like, duh, we've, again, we've all been in this gigantic case study about what is life like without social interaction. And we know we can't live without it. So you people come to your physical location. Have you thought about going out into homes or anything along those lines? Uh, do you do any in-home services? We have talked about it. There are a lot of really great non-medical home companion care companies in greater Indianapolis and in Indiana. And so, you know, at this point, we've been referring people to those that we trust and that we work with and we know others have had good experiences with. Um but we've talked about what does that look like if Joy's house was to go into the home? Can we do the same activities? You know, is it the same benefit for the caregiver um, and the guest? It's a little bit different, um, different than a social setting. But I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out for our future. I would say there's some hurdles we'd have to jump when it comes to insurance and things of that nature. But uh, we are like everybody else post-COVID. I say post like it's happened. But, you know, in the midst of covid we are um, reevaluating what we look like on the other side of this. How did Joy's House come about? How, why did you start it? What was the impetus? Uh, for me, it's, it was very God-driven. I had volunteered at an adult day service when I was in college. I went to Ball State, and I loved it. Um, but then I got out of school, and I decided to do other things. I was an event planner, which was a really great gig when you're in your 20s. Uh, my <laughs> biggest client was the Colts, so that was super fun to do, um, you know, when you're 27 and either setting up or tearing down an event at 3 in the morning. But um, I, I just I, – I had some personal experiences, and like anybody, you know, you have some pretty deep personal experiences, and you have to make a choice on if you're going to go to the left or to the right with the road. And so I just started listening a little bit more and I really felt God pulling me to adult day. But when I looked around at what was available at the time in Indianapolis, there just wasn't anything. And I thought I'd go in and be an event planner for an adult day service. I didn't think I'd start one. Um, But I came back. My mom took me on a cruise. She gifted me with a really great vacation and I surrounded myself by water and that's my spiritual place. And I came back and said, I'm going to quit my job and do this adult day thing. And uh, a very long story made, story made short, my friends gathered around me, Chris, and they were, you know, to my face, kind of pat me on the back and being like, yeah, yeah, we'll help you with this. We got this. And then behind <laughs> my back, they were like, dude, she's lost her mind. <laughs> so, um, but here we are 21 years later. 
That's excellent. Um, we are speaking to Tina McIntosh, who is the president and CEO of Joy's House, which uh, serves uh, adults who are living with alter life-altering diagnoses and uh, provides an escape and a fun escape, it sounds like. And I imagine there's a lot of people who are listening and would love to help. Tell us about some events that you've got coming up and, and how can uh, how can people help you? Yeah, I, I want to, um, if I may reiterate, that if somebody is a caregiver or knows of a caregiver, reach out to us. We're not going to try and sell you on coming in for adult day service. We want to help. It's part of our mission is for caregivers in general. So, you know, email me at tina at joyshouse.org. Other than that, we've got this town hall meeting coming up where we're going to be speaking with people from across the nation uh, as to what it means to be a caregiver during this time and some helpful tips as you're caring for a loved one. Uh, in addition, we've got in October, October 16th is a Friday, and we've got our annual event coming up. And I'm sure you've talked to plenty of people who say we normally have 500 people in attendance. <laughs> this year we're virtual. And it's like, what does that look like? We this year are calling ours the Living Room Lounge. And so you, uh, you wear your best lounge wear because you're going to be on your couch and we're going to do less than an hour of an event. Um, so October 16th, and you can check out our Facebook page to see about that, but we are going to do everything we can to make it not only informative and a fundraiser for Joyce house, which we need, we're not for profit, but also to make it really entertaining and fun. So, uh, if you have a company and want to be a sponsor, or if you want to give in kind to our auction or anything, you know, just, again, email me at, at tina at joyshouse.org. And then if somebody just wants to flat out make a donation, man, we'll do everything we can to make you proud. But we do need the support. And you can just go to joyshouse.org and click on the Donate Now button. And uh, that is the Virtual Joy of Journey Town Hall on September 17th. And then also the Living Room Lounge on October 16th. And you can find out about those at joyshouse.org. And be sure to follow them on social media and Facebook. Um, tell us a little bit about the Hauli Project. Yeah, the Hauli Project is something that we created when we all went down on, on lockdown during COVID. And <clears throat> Hauli, it's even hard for me to say, on the Hauli Project <laughs> It means joy in Hawaiian, and um, it is where we are marrying up family caregivers with a trained and vetted volunteer, and really at a time when we need that comfort and we need uh, that extra support and someone to listen. Yeah. Can I, you know, I imagine if you're a caregiver, you have a lot that you want to vent and it's it's <laughs> yeah. hard. And, and you know the nature of venting about difficult situations is that you eventually wear out other friends and family. I mean, so is is that a, a, an important part of the Hauli project? It is. Uh, it's an important part of the Hauli project for those relationships, but it's an important part of what we do every day at Joyce House. And you're right. I mean, you know, <laughs> I remember years ago when we were way back in the day when we could do these large in person events. You know, we had a. Um, hundred, couple hundred people at a caregiver retreat. And there were these two sweet, um, little older women, you know, little puffy gray hair, just these beautiful women sitting at a table. And I knew them both very well. And I walked on, up on them. And to be fair, I snuck up behind them. I didn't do it on purpose, but that's what happened. And I heard one of them turn to the other and say, you know, sometimes I just want to lock him in a closet and there might've been an explicit in there. And I was like, <laughs> okay, hold, hold the phone. You're not going to really lock him in a closet. And she, you know, laughed and she was like, no. And the other one's like, but I feel like it too. And so we had this very healthy conversation about, 
no matter how much you love somebody and how many smiles there are and how many good moments you have with somebody, the reality is sometimes you just want to lock him in a closet and you shouldn't do it. No one should do that. I want right. to be clear. <laughs> but having that safe place to connect with another caregiver um, and somebody who gets it, who says, hey, that's like you said earlier, Chris, that's a normal feeling. Yeah. And it's okay to feel that way. And how do we work through that feeling and get to the next one? Um, you know, that's what we do for people every day. So yeah, whether or not they want to be a part of the Howley Project, somebody could volunteer, or whether or not you're the actual caregiver, um, that's on our website too. Let us know. But anytime you need anything, if you're a caregiver in that situation, you call us at Joy's House. And that's what we're there for. All right. I end every program with this question. What is the thing that you see every day that you wish everybody understood about your work? Oh, my golly. Why does that make me want to cry just hearing the question? Um, ooh, you got me emotional about that. Okay. So I wish that everybody knew that even though sometimes caregiving – and I said the word earlier, but sometimes it just downright sucks, Chris. There's no nice way to say it. Sometimes it's really, really hard that these people have lived a full life, you know, with experiences and lessons learned. And um, even though sometimes it's hard for us to understand that someone with Alzheimer's or another dementia or whatever the diagnosis, it's hard for us to see them or hear them or know them the same way. Um I really believe they're still in there. And it's those little moments when somebody's eyes get clear that, you know, you've had a breakthrough or they call you by name or they just smile at you. Um, there are some beautiful moments that are just sprinkled, you know, throughout our days that I wish everybody could see uh, that we're still alive and uh, we're full of life. All right, Tina McIntosh, who is the president and CEO of Joy's House. Find out more about them at joyshouse.org. Tina, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, and thanks for what you do. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Barbara Moore, who is the president of the Assistance League of Indianapolis. Thank you so much for joining me, and why don't we start with what is the Assistance League of Indianapolis? Well, thanks, Chris, for inviting me to share the exciting work of Assistance League of Indianapolis. We are transforming lives of children and adults through our community programs. Our organization is a 501c3 nonprofit, non-political, non-sectarian, and we are one chapter of National Assistance League. There are 119 other chapters across our nation. We have no paid staff, and as of June 2020, 224 women and one man are members. We are recruiting men. And our members participate in the administration tasks of the chapter, staff our philanthropic programs, and manage our fundraising activities and events. And we invite prospective members throughout the year to attend informational coffees where they may meet the officers, and hear the overview of our organization. Our vision is to meet essential needs in our community and help families flourish. It, you know, it's interesting to me that you don't have paid staff because you're the first organization that we've talked to that is, and you know, a lot of all nonprofits rely on volunteer activity, um, but this is kind of unique. Uh, and the the 
gender difference between 224 women and one man is is kind of striking. Um, can you talk about how that works? I mean, because a lot of times you need paid staff to to motivate people to get involved, but you know, how do you keep things organized in a in a volunteer organization? Well, a lot of our members are former teachers, so they are organizers. Mm. They have lesson plans. Uh, and I think that's why we have just one man, because um, it's a little intimidating <laughs> if you're the only man with all of these women who are great planners. But they all have special skills. They come not they're not all teachers. You know, we have accountants, w- women from all different kinds of backgrounds. Um, but 83 cents of every dollar that we raise goes to our programs which is very high when you look at other um, non-for-profits. Um, the other thing, when we look at membership, we have four major philanthropic programs. The largest, which a lot of viewers can relate to in the Indianapolis area, is Operation School Bell. Uh, we provide new required clothing items to IPS and four other districts um, for a total of over 65,000 children who have been clothed since 1984-85 when Operation School Bell began. And Operation School Bell is a required program by national organization. How we run it, what we do is uh, up to our chapter. Um, we provide new clothing, as I said, books and hygiene items. Uh, Another division of Operation School Bell is shoes. So since its founding in 2000, we've provided over 70, I'm sorry, 52,000 pairs of new shoes to children. And all of this is um, uh, identified by school social workers in IPS, Warren Township, Lawrence Township, Washington Township, and Pike. Wayne Township also received some of those shoes. So um, there are just a lot of people involved in making this this a success. In the past, until COVID-19, we were located um, in one of two locations. Originally, we were in the old Coca-Cola building down on Mass Ave for a long time, funded by IPS, um, transporting the $250,000 worth of inventory that we buy for the new clothing for the children. And then we later moved to Forest Manor Professional Development Center that was sold in May of this year. So we are currently doing what, and those children were bused every day from the mid-August until the beginning of November by the school districts. They shopped uh, one-on-one with one of our volunteers that provided and chose, the the child chose 13 different items that went into a duffel bag. Mm. Now with COVID-19, we can't meet with those children. Um, So we are utilizing what we call a pick and pack method where litter forms and disposable tape measures were sent to the social workers to give to the parents who measured their child. And we're now in the process through almost Christmas, providing those items to the school systems who are presently picking up those duffel bags 
for the children in their district and distributing them to those children. So let me ask about that because um, I was in local talk radio uh, when the argument or, or debate, I guess it should be called, over school uniforms was being discussed 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, and one of the arguments for it was that lower-income families would have a, an easier time paying for items. It would make it uh, more standardized. It would it would help those families. Um, I don't know if you have the frame of reference before and after, but what, what's your opinion on that? Do you see that, that the standardization of school uniforms is helpful? And, you know, can you kind of talk about the situation that leads a family? Who, who are your typical clients or beneficiaries? Um in this program? Uh, those families are identified by the school personnel, usually the school uh, social worker, and they are individuals, families that meet financial requirements at or below the poverty level. So we don't pick and choose those families. The schools do that, and we rely on them uh, to do that. Um, we did a major study back Uh, I want to say in 2010-11, to validate what we're doing uh, to grantors that we rely heavily upon, besides our members for money and donors, through various fundraisers that we have. And what we we did find is a uniform uh, apparel reduces bullying, It gives confidence to the child that the child looks just like his other peers um, and uh, helps that self-esteem of a child. Now, those are uh, qualitative things, not quantitative, Um, but we have we've heard from social workers, parents, the students writing letters, how much better they feel about themselves. So we still have a couple of of townships, Washington Township and Lawrence Township, um, that do not require uniforms. And therefore, one of the expansions of our uh, uh, apparel had to do with providing blue jeans, because we certainly don't want to give apparel that a child doesn't want to wear unless he's going to church. I mean, they are, you know, uh, khaki and uh, navy blue pants. Um, There's an assortment of colors of uh, collared polo shirts and so forth, but we want them to be able to utilize that and feel comfortable at school. And what's also interesting in this pandemic is as we distribute this pick and pack method, parents have said, you know, even if my kid is going to school virtually, I want him getting up and putting on the uniform, the uniform and having an established time to sit down and do the virtual learning so that eventually our goal is to move from the virtual to the in-school and there will be less of a problem um, for the parent or the child making that acclimatization. That's really interesting. Um, Give us a sense of the size and scope of this program. How many students are you serving uh, and what are the needs for things like shoes as well? Well, uh, our goal has always been 3,375 students that we service in apparel. This year, we are serving 2,700 students with new shoes, and we partner with Shoe Carnival 
the parents are doing tracings of their child's foot um, and those come back to the social workers that come back to our leadership team. They're cut out and then they're sent to shoe carnival and they pull shoes this year for us. And they are actually delivering them from shoe carnival to the school system where then the school people will distribute those shoes, of course, with the child's name on it and so forth. And um, we worked really hard at those fitter forms. We have such talented graphic artists and so forth. And I'm really happy, I'm excited to report that we've had very few um, sizes that have not worked either with apparel or with shoes. That's great. So, you know, I don't think people realized how much of a, how many wraparound services go into schools and how much of a, of a hub it is for caring for uh, students of all income levels, but especially those in lower income brackets. And the pandemic really highlighted how, how much so that is. And can you give us an idea of what impact the, the pandemic has had on those families and how it's complicated your work and, and the work of those wraparound services? Well, I think the biggest impact has been what is a, a, a hardworking individual, a family member trying to make ends meet, uh, care for children who are at home. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine that. I have grandkids myself and, you know, that my son uh, and daughter-in-law have been dealing with that for a while. I also am very concerned about the technology aspect of those kids receiving services virtually because so many of those families, when you're talking about underserved families, do not have those connections. And I can't imagine what a headache it's been for all of our school systems trying to deal with that. And they're still trying to, I think, to figure that out. Um, so far with our services, we've we've served Warren First and Lawrence Township. We're now doing Washington Township. IPS is still on the back burner you know they're they're dealing with new charter schools and trying to serve those those underserved families and uh pike township i don't think we're going to get to until january so um it it's it's been a challenge for everyone but we believe that you know through challenges we become a better organization um uh, the other program I want to just talk about with Operation School Bell is something that's called Beyond the Bell. And it began in 2014 as a permanent um, program. And these are uh, bags of new clothing that go to the social workers to distribute to children who um, are homeless, who maybe have had a fire, who have... Um, moved into the district and uh, in, in before COVID, it was like, you have to have this uniform or you're not coming to school. So our goal is to have the children in school and learning. That's, that's one of our, our goals because we realize that children make that bond with their teacher, feel secure and so forth. So when you talk about other challenges in the community, it's like those children have been ripped from people, from teachers that they love and the people that look after them. And they're in their own home in whatever situation it is. 
Yeah, and we've we've seen in some of the uglier sides those mandatory reporters being removed have have hurt in other areas too. So, uh, and just a quick question, forgive me, I should know this, but are all the local school systems one hundred percent back, or are they still doing some hybrid, or are they online, or where are the school systems right now in terms of of in person meeting? Well, I think Warren will tell you as well as Lawrence um, that they are. They, the parents have a choice, but most of them are going to school. Mm-hmm. Most of the children are in school. Washington, I think, is, is hybrid. Um, I can't speak about Pike because I haven't talked to our, our chairman of Operation School Bell. And I think IPS is um, also a hybrid model at this point. Yeah, I think my niece has the choice uh, at at IPS. We are talking to Barbara Moore, who is the president of the Assistance League of Indianapolis. Their website is alindy.org. Be sure to check them out. Check out all of their programs. Donate. Uh, So you mentioned three other programs that the Assistance League uh, operates. uh, What's the next one? Next one is called um, Assault Survivor Kits. Excuse me. And these are kits that our volunteers uh, assemble and distribute to hospitals, shelters, and treatment centers for those individuals who are assaulted, raped, or experience domestic violence. And these kits are in Ziploc bags. They are a sweatshirt, sweatpants, underwear, and socks, so that when that individual's um, apparel is taken for forensic evidence, They don't leave the facility in a hospital gown. So what's been interesting is tracking um, for our grantors, counties in which we we operate, because it's just not central Indiana. We go as far as Muncie to Terre Haute uh, and looking at the demographics of those individuals, how many assaults and those kind of things. And of course, you might expect at this time with the stress that we've been under, those numbers are higher. Another program we have is called Alley Bears, Assistance League of Indianapolis Bears. And these are um, child safe teddy bears to bring comfort to children and adults who are ill or traumatized or grieving. And those are distributed to the employees at the hospitals, hospices, and so forth. Um, And, you know, one thing I'll I'll just share is I was down at Riley Hospital and um, you have children who um, who might have been molested by by family members or whomever, and they give them a physical exam. And we were delivering those bears that day, and um, she said, "Well, after the exam, we give them the bear." And I go, "Well, why wouldn't you give them the bear before the exam? Because if I was a little six-year-old or five-year-old, and you're doing that kind of exam, I'd want to hold something really tight and love it." So that gives you some perspective there. And um, our last program is called Alley Friends because we not only serve children, but also adults. And this is a really exciting um, program because we go into Joy's house or before the pandemic, we went into a day adult um, out Joy's house, as well as a permanent facility at North Capital Rehabilitation Center. And we uh, bring in birthday parties, bingo, um, white cards, 
give blankets, just trying to give those senior residents and disabled individuals love and, and respect um, that they deserve as, as people. So we're hoping we, uh, at North Capitol, since those are permanent um, residents, we've been writing notes and taking sugar-free things down, but we haven't been able to um, actually be in the facility again until after this hopefully is all over. Yeah, we've uh, we spoke to Joy's House, great organization. Go back and listen to our interview at uh, nowhearthisindie.com. And uh, they do amazing work. And you know what? What strikes me about these these four programs is it seems like a small thing um, to to uh, like in the case of the survivors kit to provide clothing or a, a stuffed animal in an exam like that. But can you talk about the impact on what seems like a small item in a moment where? There isn't much dignity, and it helps provide some of that. I mean, what what impact do these items have on the people that you're serving? I think you said it well. It provides them dignity. They've gone through something traumatic or a great loss, and it's something that they can leave feeling not so violated. Um, and, of course, we have no t- contact with those victims, we only have the reports that um, the hospital nurse will report on, on the forms that we receive. Um, but I know all of us um, as members feel like it's making a big difference in all of those lives. We see a difference in all of the lives that we touch. That's all I can say. Yeah, uh, it's it's. Beautiful. So let's talk about how you how you fund this. How you uh, how do you collect the shoes, the clothes? Like what what is the process to make this happen? Is it just purely you take in cash and then buy it in bulk? Do you take donations? How do you organize this? Well, uh, we have grantors. Number one, we have a grants chairman in our organization in our leadership team, uh, and we actively solicit grants um, that. Uh, provide for what we uh, uh, do in the community. Uh, We have fundraising activities. Uh, For example, right now we have mailed out what we call Operation School Bell mailers to our friends and family, um, asking them to, to donate to our different programs. We're having a virtual holiday event on the on December 3rd. I invite anybody who's listening to join us. It's at no cost at 12 to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and we will have um, an ask. We will uh, award uh, a couple of grantors who have been major grantors uh, for many years to our organization and recognize them. We'll have a fashion show from Secret Ingredient. But the, the goal of the event to raise $100,000. And we also have usually in April or May of 2021, another spring fundraiser. In the past, it's been a big gala or a dinner. Last year, it was all virtual. And uh, we were so thankful that our supporters came out and um, donated so that we could provide the funds that are necessary to buy the, the new clothing for the children and provide for these other um, uh, 
programs, philanthropic programs that we have. And then, of course, our members are very uh, generous as well. So we're always looking for new members who uh, follow the passion that we have and that are, you know, part of the commitment of a new member is to support those various programs financially as well as with ours um, and their talents that we need when we're not paying a staff, but they have a background that can help lead us uh, into the future. With a couple hundred volunteers, I would imagine, and you said most of them are teachers, are they in the schools? Is there is there almost like a chapter system where if uh, somebody listening right now hears this and is there a way to contact a teacher that may represent your organization at the school so they can help in their local school? We've, we've looked at that, but a lot of us are retired people because if you're a teacher, you're working really hard. And most of our programs run during the day. Gotcha. Um, so uh, you need to have flexibility in your schedule. We have people that are called non-voting members who have that are still working in their profession and they uh, give their time and talent as they're able to do so. The big change this year has been from operating in an actual building to and having a store where those kids were transported by the school system with their social worker working one-on-one with a volunteer to make those selections, for example, with Operation School Bell Apparel. This year, it's we're not having any contact with that. And we don't know how next year is going to look. The biggest challenge um, that I'd like to speak about is the fact that where we operated, where we had a store, where the kids were transported, where the students sat in a room and they wrote thank you notes and they colored and they waited for that one-on-one volunteer. It is gone. That building was sold. And within three weeks, we had to move out of that building and move $350,000 worth of inventory and equipment somewhere. That is the first time in 36 years we have ever been faced with that. IPS was such a generous contributor to us for all of these years that we never paid practically anything for where they housed us. Fortunately, uh, the Center Township trustee offered us an 8,000 square foot space in the third floor of the Marion County trustee office. And that is where we moved three fourths of what we housed in the former building and where we've set up this pick and pack method. So I am actively soliciting the community to provide a donated or very low cost flex space to our organization because we need to have a new home. You can't move every year with the inventory and what we what we house to have a program. And of course, the question will be next year, will we be meeting with children? one-on-one. Will we ever go back to that method again? And I don't have that answer. But what I do know as the president is we have to have a plan A, B, C, and D. You know, extending maybe the lease agreement at Center Township. But that is a very desirable area on Mass Ave right across from the Coca-Cola. And our program, our programs begin June through May of each year. So 
There are other chapters that offer voucher programs where you work with a JCPenney or a uh, Target and you give a gift card to a parent. And then you have members that go to that uh, establishment in the afternoon. You sort of supervise what they're buying with that gift card. That's another answer for some pro for some chapters. And then the absolute worst thing, in my opinion, would be to suspend Operation School Bell for next year. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a shame to have thousands of kids lose that support. Um, so if somebody were out, was out there listening and heard that and had a solution, who's a good person that they could contact and how would they go about that? They would contact me. Okay. <laughs> at yeah. president at ALND.org. Barbara Moore, but it's just president, capital P. Yeah. And we are working. One of the great things that we did was um, we have an advisory council that uh, pro bono gives us advice on legal matters. Um, in this case, real estate. And he is a uh, Jack Hogan is a retired commercial real estate specialist. We've sent out over 500 emails to contacts through his um business, his former business. I've been writing all of our superintendents in uh, in Indianapolis, letting them know where we are at the present uh, and asking them to consider, do they have space? Um, because gosh, in this pandemic, everybody's thinking people are going to, it's not going to be the old norm of working in a building. Do you have building space that you can greatly reduce for our organization? But, you know, the reality is um, all of our, the money that we raise goes for our community and families. We do not spend money on space. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so my final question for Barbara Moore, president, ALND.org, uh, the Assistance League of Indianapolis, I should say. What is the thing? Well, we're 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 short on time, so I'll I'll ask. I have two questions because I really want to ask you this one before I go to the final one. You, you know, there's probably no other group of people besides police officers and social workers that are in the field touching and talking to the population in a way that teachers do. So, as you guys talk amongst yourselves as an organization, what are the un what are the unfunded programs that you wish you could start that you see a need out there that you go somebody's got to take care of this. Well, I think we're challenged to continue to provide what we have. However, I will say um, National Assistance League has something that's called Action Week, where uh, each chapter decides how they want to implement clothing, hunger. Um, there, there are five elements, and I can't say them right off the top of my head, but I'm really proud that our um, members supported um an Action Week hunger drive for Greenbrier and Nora Elementary in Washington Township. And we did that because our chapter office is located in Washington Township. We also had a literacy initiative back in February where we provided new kindergarten and first grade books to the children that were not loaned to them, that they were actually theirs and they could go home and read and share it with whomever. But Back in uh, September, we provided 50 of the most neediest families in both Nora and Greenbrier with food and supplies 
to get them through um, their fall break. And uh, the social workers worked with us on those lists. So when you talk about other things you can do within the community, that's a great example that that we provided and we're considering doing it before spring break as well. And that the money that came to buy those items came from the goodness of our, our volunteers. What do you see in your work every single day that you wish everybody understood about your work? Um, I think uh, I'd like them to know that I have great joy serving this organization. Um, I think everyone in my organization understands how challenging and stressful it has been. Um, but the most important thing is we're doing it and we're doing it so well. And those children are going to get um, what they need, what we provided just in a different way. And um, I just say prayers for 2021. Barbara Moore, president of the Assistance League of Indianapolis. Their website is alnd.org. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to Now Hear This. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. If you missed any portion of our program, you can listen on our website, nowhearthisindy.com. If you'd like to have your organization featured on the show, please email Gabby at nowhearthisindy at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and we will be back again next weekend with Now Hear This.